Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. This for UFC 281. I'm Paul Shaughnessy, joined on the line by Cody Safdick, breaking down this pay-per-view card from Madison Square Garden. Uh, you know, housekeeping, how did last week go? I was going out to dinner for, for somebody's birthday with Pat and them. I got a little bit too... I, I bet too many underdogs. I mean, we liked underdogs last week, but... I got my my hand caught in the cookie jar a little bit, and on top of that, Viana. If I just there was a plus two sixty inside the distance, Cody. If I took that, my night is at least like evens. But I took the sub at plus three hundred. It's just like so small. I didn't think that she was gonna win by knockout, and not in the first round like that by knockout. Um, yeah, it was just one of those, one of those nights where it's just like, I made some mistakes, but you know, there's, there's fights every single week and we got a great card to break down here. So, uh, leave that in the past, move on forward. How you doing Yeah, this well, week, we buddy? knew last week, yeah, we knew last week was going to be a tough card. It was just kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a tough gathering altogether, not, not the highest profile guys. And then. Yeah, like you said, there's a couple, not just underdogs winning, it's how they won. It's Marina Rodriguez getting completely knocked out. It's Ginny Frey getting completely knocked out. It's, you know, Derek Minner throwing a fight. Like, there's, you know, expect the unexpected. So, (laughs) tough situation all around, but... uh, too bad I was not in on that fix. Uh, whatever. So this is a way better card all around. Like you said, pay-per-view offering. Um, solid solid fight. And uh, yeah, good good card to get these nice little spots in, I think. Yeah, that was super sketch. Like, I, I guess we can talk about it really quickly here. It's just like, I don't know. Like, when you see that much market movement, and then the guy comes in and, and lays an absolute egg. And there was like massive money coming in on like round one TKO. Like I know that they're go they're doing an investigation on it. I know nothing. I know less than anybody else about it. And like there have been other situations where you've seen steam at the book where it was like pri- primarily steamed up to like minus 400 for uh, Shia in there. Um, there have been situations like you may remember uh, Macwan took on. Uh, Mike Grundy and like right before the fight there was like similar steam like that and then it didn't really matter like like Mike Grundy went up to like a minus 300 favorite and I was sitting there with like a Macwan ticket going like man I I guess if I won't wait until the last second I could have got this but Macwan ended up going out there and winning so like these things do happen you do see like weird steam but then when the guy shows up gets injured pretty much immediately and then like just kind of covers his face um, I feel like Mark Smith just like let him take a little bit of punishment there on the ground. Like Minner had nothing. Obviously, information got leaked out about it, and uh, they'll we'll find out um how it all shakes out. But yeah, definitely a sketchy situation. I'm not gonna like say that it was a full out fight fix or anything like that, but clearly uh, information was made available to certain people and not others, which is a little bit weird. A little bit weird, I will say. Yeah, well, like you said, man, it has happened before with like crazy line shifts, but this line shift reminded me a whole lot of Taegun Banks and Leo Koontz, for sure, because it was like all the money moved late, and then that one ended up being the guy got approached. So we don't know the optics, and then at risk of getting a lawsuit, like we can't really jump in with greasy theories, because I've got some greasy theories. (laughs) But if you wanted to just go by like what are the facts that we do know, 
Well, the facts that we do know are that uh, what are the chances that, okay, okay, James Krause, excellent, you know, coach. He's a UFC fighter. He, he's a good blossoming talent. And, you know, eventually his uh, his career stalls out as a fighter, gets a little bit older, decides to retire. He's coaching a few guys in the gym, says that there's not a whole lot of money in coaching guys because you're getting a small percentage and it's not like everyone's a world champion. So by his own accord, you know, things are going okay. He gets into the betting game, which is great, right? Has his own show, uh, doing some good numbers. He's got a Discord. People sign up. He gives them some inside information. And right off the get-go, not that I give a shit, but just right off the get-go, People start bringing it up. They're like, well, isn't that a possible conflict of interest? Like he would have insider information. So what well, What if he was to say, hey, Zach Cummings is a sprained ankle, uh, go the other way. And it's like, oh, well, he doesn't bet his own guys. He doesn't bet those fights. But he's got inside information about other fights. Well, what other fights would he have inside information about? Presumably the best angle that he's got on anybody would be his own guys, right? Not the point. So he has his own little Discord. He has his own little show. He, he, he provides betting information. That's all well and cool. You got the Shea guy. I don't know much about him, but it's kind of like the guy that he does a show with. It's so much so that the UFC says, hey, guys, why don't you go on Fight Pass? Bring your show on Fight Pass, and you guys can do a gambler's perspective right on there. So the UFC is behind him. He's gambling on fights. He's coaching fighters in the UFC. And up until like a week ago, this is all perfectly legal, right? This is the concerning part to me. And again, I'm not bringing up anything that's not fact, right? This is the concerning part to me, is that they did an account takeover where instead of them just giving you hot picks, you give them your account information. And they guarantee and profit. They would, run, they would run the account for you, okay? So this is interesting for two points, right? Point number one why this is interesting is if you were to go into a book and say, here's a million dollars, they would say, what's your information? What's your driver's license? What's your social security number? Where did this money come from? No book just takes a million dollar bet for the hell of it, doesn't happen. Now, what if you had access to 100 accounts? And these accounts are all over the place. They're in the Midwest, they're in the Northeast, they're in Canada, they're in Europe, they're in Alaska, they're all over the place. Now, individual money coming in, right, it's gonna change the line, but it's not gonna red flag it under one person. So in terms of spreading the money, if you were to hit an insider tip, that would be like, I would think that'd be the way to do it for sure. Now, the only way this is gonna work is if you had a guaranteed lock. Now, how are you going to get guarantee lock? Well, it would have to be somebody in your gym. Now, in Minner's case, Minner may or may not be at fault. Minner might know about it and went in and took a dive. Sure, then he's at fault. Minner may also be at fault the same way TJ Dillashaw is, whereas that he took the fight willingly, his knees blown out, his coaching staff and his team know about it, but he's not going in with the intention of throwing the fight. He's going in the intention of, fighting and maybe I catch him in a quick little guillotine choke or something and you know uh, I'm a middling UFC uh, career fighter I get paid 25,000 a fight I need three fights a year so that I can break even on my training camp expenses and pay my mortgage I need to fight so he goes in there compromising fights so he didn't willingly throw the fight mm -hmm. just like TJ didn't willingly throw the fight but the people around him that know that he's compromised now no Derek's not going to win this fight and put the money now was that James was that his guys was that the a bunch of account takeovers, the guaranteed profit. I don't know. Not my place to say because I'm not the investigator, right? They got their own investigation team. I'm sure they're smarter guys than I am, and I'm sure they'll come to the bottom line. So, like, I'm not speculating on that. I'm just saying that's what we do know. And and to your point with the guaranteed profit, what happens is you get these guys' accounts, and now it's like, okay, you lost week one, and you lose week two. Slight profit week three, but you lose week four. Now customer satisfaction is starting to get a little bit, little bit lower. It's like, oh, hey, man. I want to see these numbers get up. You go out there and you hit that big one. You went the other way. 
who knows? Who knows what the situation is? I'm just saying it's like that's and, and then greasy theory, not my theory, the greasy theory. That Shea guy said he had like what a couple million yeah, dollars on David on the Onama right? fight against Landwehr. So so David Onama, he's got a couple million dollars riding on him. He loses, and then instead of coming out and being like, "Dude, I got tanked on this," he comes and he starts backing out and being like, "Oh well, we bought the other side. We bought the regression on Landwehr, trying to cover his tracks like I didn't get smoked for two million dollars." But the greasy theory there would be is that we need to recoup from getting smoked on Onama. How can we recoup? Well, we need somebody to go out there and do the damn thing. And then I'm more of like an analytical numbers guy. And all I'm saying is the guy, what are the chances? What are the chances that it's Derek Minner out of that camp? Like, what are the chances? Like, the only guys that are possibly going to get speculated here on are on Zach Cummins, him. Uh, you're not going to risk one of your, like, upper echelon guys. Brandon Moreno is not going out there. And, and I'm not even saying he willingly took a dive. I'm saying it's the same thing as I TJ. Mean, Minner Minner was on a two fight losing streak entering that fight, so that made it three straight losses. I don't think he intentionally is going into there going, I'm gonna lose, because we know in this sport for the UFC, you lose three straight fights, you're pretty much good as gone. Um, that's just the way it goes. Like you lose unless you're Sam Alvey and you've got, you know, you know where the bodies are buried. Totally different situation. You can lose eight fights in a row, and Dana's probably still considering him for a late notice replacement right now. But yeah, but but, but, but like Minner, it seems a little bit weird. But I mean, the performance is exactly how I would throw a fight if I were to throw a fight. Not that I'm saying anybody threw a fight. Um, that's for you know the legal investigation and all of that. Um, all I will say is that the entire situation looked incredibly sketchy. And to bring up uh, Bang versus Kuntz again, or Kuntz, sorry, my bad. Um, wasn't that like Bang was supposed to throw that fight? And that was like over in Asia and like the line spiked like crazy, uh, like an hour before. Very similar to what happened here. Um, but like Bang was actually supposed to lose that fight. And then he got like cold feet when he was in. And then he still spent jail time. Because he was involved in, like, a potential fight fix. So, like, poor guy went against the mob and, you know, actually performed how he was supposed to perform. And, uh, and, uh, and still, uh, even though he didn't actually throw the fight, still got in trouble for being involved in the whole thing altogether. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, okay. So they approached the Taeyeon Bang. They said, we're, we're going to throw a ton of money on you, and you're going to throw the fight to Leo Kuhn. So the mm -hmm. line swings heavy, and now Taeyeon Bang needs to throw the fight. But he says the UFC approaches him backstage in the dressing room, and they say, listen, we've been alerted to a fight fix because of the, the, the drastic shift in the line. So they were alerted to it, and they approached him. And then by him as a, his accord, when they approached him, they told him there's legal ram ramifications on this. He decided, I'm not throwing the fight. So he goes out and he fights Leo Kuntz anyways, and he ends up winning a greasy split decision. If you watch the fight, it could have been scored for Kuntz. It could, have, but you should have paid off the judges, not bang. Like, yeah. but I will admit, he drops Kuntz in the fight, and then whereas at regular time he would have swarmed, he doesn't. He like backs off like shit. I was supposed to throw this fight, now I might knock this guy out. Like he doesn't fight normal. No. Funnily enough, he only Leo Kuntz only had two fights with the UFC. That one, which was speculated in a fight fix, which he still lost a split decision on, and Islam Makachev. <laughs> so, uh, Dems to break for po yeah, that, poor Leo Kuntz. That one went from plus 140 on Kuntz to <laughs> minus 280, like, in the middle of the yeah. night, because that fight card was in Asia. Uh, I mean, just, yes, silly, silly stuff. 
What a what a wild world well, the world of MMA let's, is. Let's, we'll move on, but I'll yeah. just leave you with this one thing, very fictitious, and I won't even bring up Derek Minner because I feel like we're going to get in trouble enough for talking about it as it is. Let's talk about TJ Dillashaw. So TJ Dillashaw gets a positive test from USADA. They suspend him. He's on the shelf for years. Obviously, life's not as good as it could be as a UFC champion. Stripped of the title, lose to Henry Cejudo. Bad look, right? So now you're coming back. You've missed years of your prime. You've been sitting on the shelf. You think he teaches seminars and does endorsement deals and gets paid the kind of money he would from actually fighting, pay-per-view revenue, actually being active? Of course not. So I'm not saying times are tough for TJ Dillashaw, but maybe times are as good as it, it should be. He's getting a little bit older. His body's getting banged up. So even though he's going through the motions of getting ready for this fight, he knows deep down, I'm not ready. But I need the money. They're going to pay me $200,000 guaranteed flat rate to go out there and fight Aljamain Sterling. I need the $200,000, so I'm going to take the fight. Now, if you're his team, you're his management company, and you're watching this guy practice every night, and it's like, dude, his shoulder is quite literally pumping out of its socket by his own accord five, six times per practice every day. I got to get this re this thing reset all the time. So you would know that insider information. You would know he's compromised. Now, TJ might go out there and get beat the shit out of by Aljamain Sterling, and then what becomes of him? He's going to have to sit six months on the sidelines, eight months on the sidelines, comes back a little bit older. You know, he'll never be quite the same. If we took that $200,000 and we bet that $200,000 on Aljamain Sterling by TKO, it would pay $1.2 million. Now, $1.2 million would set us up pretty good, right? You don't got to worry about fighting five or six more times. Sit on the sidelines, get healthy. You got 1.2 million in the bank. That's what you want to try to go out on. So that's what you may at least cross your mind. Why not bet against myself? And why by TKO specifically? Because one, the line on Aljamain by, by TKO was big. But two, it's easier to, like you said, uh, throw a fight by way of TKO because you can say you got injured. You can quite literally say, I can't see. I can't see. Oh, the fight's been called off. Oh, I hurt my ankle. I hurt my knee. I broke my hand. You basically just say no moss. It's not a verbal tap. It's a TKO. If the doctor stops it. If the ref stops it, if your corner stops it, it's ruled a TKO. So if you go out there and you throw a kick and then you fall on your knee and, oh, my knee's bummed, then it's a TKO. That'd be the easy way to flop over. If you're TJ, same thing. It's like, if I'm sitting there on the ground, can't defend myself because I got one arm dislocated, is Aljamain going to try to choke me? Potentially, but more than likely, they're going to stop this thing and say, hey, he's compromised. He's taking too many shots. Stop it by TKO. And you don't even have to get that greasy and be like, oh, you bet this guy by TKO. No, no, just take the under two and a half. Just take the under three and a half. In this case, with the Minner fights, hammer that under one and a half. His knee's compromised. He can't fight seven and a half minutes. Not going to happen, right? Um, but the reason why people are going to say fight fix is like, I just literally watched Nick Maximoff fight 14 minutes on a blown out knee. And, uh, he did it. He did it because he had the desire to do it. Whereas other guys, it's like, Oh no, I'm done over. I wouldn't fault Brian Ortega. I wouldn't fault, you know, Calvin Cater. I wouldn't fault any of those like elite upper echelon guys, but you said it. So yourself two fight losing streak mid in the division. Only win is over Charles Rosa. That really doesn't count for much. Oh, I'll TJ. TJ Laramie, I suppose, as well. But, uh, you know, he's released from the promotion. Was a young kid. Is it the craziest thing you've ever heard? No, yeah. no. But maybe that's all tinfoil hat shit. So all we can do is talk about this card and hope that we're on the right side of the greasy knee blow. Jesus. Yeah. Everything that we just said just allegedly happened. Like, don't come and try to sue us because we didn't really 
We didn't really say whether or not. I mean, it looked like a potential fix. We're not saying that it was a fix. Let's get into fights before we get in trouble. We got uh, Israel Adesanya taking on Alex Powatan Pereira. Minus 205, Izzy. Plus 180 for Pereira. Cody, take it away. Yeah, this is a spot where I probably lose money on going against the under uh, the favorite in Izzy Adesanya, but uh, I got to go the other way. I, I just think that if it's going to end up being a kickboxing match, there's a lot that I really do like. Um, I like it's not it's not so much as easy as all oh, these guys have fought before because that's like the big narrative. Oh, Adesanya's fought Alex Pereira. He got knocked out. This and that. They've changed so much since then that to me it's kind of irrelevant. To me, what is still relevant, though, is like the mental aspect of it. Because you've been seeing since he signed to the UFC, he's everything Israel Adesanya is always bringing up. And they're very continuous, him and his team, they're, they're very continuous on this notion of he doesn't deserve the title fight. He shouldn't get the next title fight. Let him fight all the challengers and then fight him. Not as if like you're avoiding the fight, but imagine you were the champion of all great champions and there was like that one blemish on your kickboxing record and now that guy is there. Do you want to fight? Jared Cannonier, or would you not want to fight that guy and avenge yourself? And he's a kickboxing badass, two-way world-class uh, world champion over in glory kickboxing. Guy's the man. Why would you not want that fight? But it seemed like he was avoiding the fight, kind of. And then all of a sudden, you get hot and ready. He wins his, his fight over Strickland. Everyone's pumped up. So immediately after he wins, Izzy accepts the fight. And then to me, since then, it's not like been backtracking, but... They're bringing up a lot of the, like, well, we don't think he deserves it. He doesn't deserve it. Bro, this is a good fight. This is the kind of fight people would love to see. If this was Pride and it was in Japan, who would care if the fight made sense? It's going to be a banger of a fight. Why not go with that, right? So in some way, I think Prayer is already inside of his head, and I think that's a big advantage. Now you look at the size of Prayer compared to the size of a lot of these other guys that Izzy has been fighting. Izzy's got that long Matador kind of style, John Jones, right? He's long. He's lengthy. He knows exactly how to use that distance, and he's very quick-footed from the outside. He's not above having a boring fight and just sniping you from the outside, but a lot of these guys can't do anything about it. But again, when you look at them, Jared Cannonier's six feet tall. Sure, he used to fight at heavyweight, but he's not the biggest guy. I think his reach is... I think him, it's, I don't know, I want to say two inches shorter than Pereira, but he's like five inches shorter than Pereira, right? A guy like Robert Whitaker. Robert Whitaker's got like six inches less in the reach department than Alex Pereira. Robert Whitaker used to fight at 170 pounds. Calvin Gaslam used to fight at 170 pounds. These guys are not that big, big, big size. Rob Brute size of an Alex Pereira. So, the narrative of maybe is he just going to take him down? Like I, I don't know enough about his offensive wrestling, to or his offensive grappling from stand up to to take him down. Like he's a big guy, you can lean up against the cage maybe, but even then he's good in the clinch. He's going to be hitting you. So I don't know. Israelson has been playing it safe, right? And to me, that he doesn't want to engage Jared Cannonier in the pocket because Cannonier's got that big power. So you play it safe and you play to the outside, mm -hmm. right? These, these other guys, you can play it safe and you can play to the outside. If you can't do that against Pereira, it's going to be a problem. Now, kickboxing's all the guys ever done in his entire life. So in terms of cardio and him having to fight five rounds, again, I mean, if it's a stand-up fight with not a whole lot of grappling, he'll be able to stand there and throw shots all night, not worried about that. His shots should have the bigger impact, the more the more meaning. And I think for the judges' cage side, Israel Adesanya staying to the outside, throwing a couple jabs and some low kicks, Pereira's landing those big thudding blows. Maybe they're going to inch towards him. So when you look at minus 210, when you look at 2-1 to one status on Izzy, I just feel like it's live underdog 
the other way in Alex Pereira. Yeah, I don't really have too much to add to that. I haven't bet it yet. Um, I don't really feel like there's a real rush to do it because, like, this line, I mean, it opened at, like, I mean, months ago. It opened at, like, plus 170. It went down to, like, plus 140, and then it's back up in that range, 170, 180, um, pretty much market-wide right now. So people are betting at Asanya. I feel like I can probably wait until weigh-ins to, to add Pereira. But yeah, obviously, you already went over their history uh, between the two of them. Pereira's won both of their kickboxing matches. Pereira's been putting in time with Glover, uh, you know, in, in the gym. He's been putting in time with uh, with uh, Terman, who we'll talk about later on the card. Um, his grappling has definitely come along. Like, we saw in the Bruno Santos fight, or uh, Bruno Silva fight, that, like, he was taken down, but... You know, he wasn't a complete stiff in those positions. He knew how to kind of get back to his feet. And yeah, Israel Adesanya's never landed a takedown in the UFC. Now, we've seen like marked, you know, defensive uh, improvements from Israel Adesanya. But who's just like, we don't know that he has really any sort of offensive wrestling to speak of. And if he does take him down, like how long is he going to be able to hold him down? Like Pereira's been rolling around with Glover, like... I don't know if Izzy's just going to submit him. So, yeah, I think it's a pretty clear. You know, you don't have to, like, twist my arm too much to get me to bet an underdog. So, it, yeah, Pereira will be the pick, and I'll have money on him uh, come Saturday night as well. One one last thing that I'll throw on there real quick as well sure. is that when you look at Izzy, is that he has a long body of work in these five rounds. But, again, him versus Jared Cannonier, 116 landed. And people say that it was a boring fight because they're not – they're maybe – you know, significant strikes. They're not those big strikes, but the rest of his fights, him versus Whitaker, five rounds, 79. Him versus Marvin Vittori, five rounds, 96. Him versus Jan Blockwitz, five rounds, 78. Uh, him versus Yoel Romero, five rounds, 48. When you look at Alex Pereira, that one fight with Bruno, because that's the fight that goes a few rounds and is actually a striking battle, he landed 108 significant strikes through three rounds, mm-hmm. right? So again, I mean, just I feel like whereas these other guys are waiting for that one hit or quitter on Izzy, this guy's not just, I have big power. He's one of the best, most accomplished kickboxers, Muay Thai fighters, well-rounded. I think he can just beat him in a straight-up chess match, kickboxing match, but it's having that power advantage that should allow him to prevail. And the mental edge of, if you're Izzy, do you not think to yourself, like, damn, dude, I fought this guy twice and he beat me both times. And the second time, I got stretchered out of the place. Like, now I've got to now I've got to fight him again, even though he knocked me out one of those two times in smaller gloves. Yeah, yeah. So if I'm him, I'm saying the same thing. Like, bro, go fight some of these other middleweight challengers first, and you know, beat four or five guys, and then you know, then we'll talk down the road because not you wouldn't fight him, but you're thinking of reasons for like, hopefully somebody else beats him and then I don't got to fight him. But if he beats three, four more guys, like it's inevitable. So kudos to the champion for taking it, but because he is the champion, it's not really kudos. It's like, this is what you're supposed to do. Some guys, your number one challenger and he comes out and for you to be like, well, he's not the number one challenger. He's like the number seventh guy. It's like, cool and fight the number seventh guy like do you think rocky was the number one guy when he fought apollo creed no he was like ranked 55 but his name was the italian stallion which is marketable so they were like let's give it to him and as you may or may not know paul shaughnessy the rest history i, I mean not a real situation you know considering that it was a fictitious movie but i i get i get your point how about we move on to the other championship fight? We got Zhang Weili taking on Carla Esparza, minus 335 for the challenger, the champion, 
can be had for plus 275. Obviously, we're coming off of the heel or, you know, Carla. She went, she got married. You know, she was a big underdog going into the Rose fight. And literally nothing happened besides, like, maybe, like, what, a takedown for Esparza. Not really many strikes thrown. Very, very ugly, slow-paced fight. And I don't think that's going to be the case with Zhang Weili, who is a little tank. Moves forward, throws hard shots. Uh, the grappling has been a work in progress. She's put in a lot of work down in Arizona with Henry Cejudo and his team. I mean, I think she's a, a rightful favorite here. And I think that the price is probably pretty close to accurate. I feel like as the week goes on, I'm, I'm kind of drawn to it. Uh, I want to bet Zhang Wei Li inside the distance. I kind of think of the... Um, you know, the Yun Jacek fight when, when Esparza had the belt the first time. It's just like once she got pressured up against the cage, once she wasn't able to, or once Esparza wasn't able to like get to the hips, she just kind of like, once she got pressured up against the cage, she was just stuck there. And she just ate shots until, you know, the ref steps in and, uh, and saves her from, uh, from her misery. Uh, that's kind of how I see it shaking out here. Maybe Esparza gets a takedown. Maybe she gets two, but Zhang Wei Li's already been. Uh, five rounds with some of the division's elites. She hits really, really hard, and Carla's gotta, Carla's gotta have like a perfect fight here. She's gotta like mind her p's and q's, get to the hips without taking too much damage. And she's like Zhang Wei Li just needs like one big flurry to land, and that would be all she wrote. So I probably will skip the money line at minus three thirty-five. Like I think it's probably like an 75-80% outcome type of thing, but uh, inside the distance for Zhang Wei Li is like a pick em price right now. So that's where my, my money is going to end up in the co-main event. What about you? Yeah, same thing. Not only am I going inside the distance, but more specifically, I think I like the TKO prop. I don't yeah. necessarily see her submitting Carlos Esparza as much as, like you said, just an accumulation of damage. Either she stops her standing with a barrage of strikes or just eventually close up one of the eyes, you know, swell her face up. Carla, when she does get those takedown stuff and is forced to exchange, she tends to do wear a lot of swelling. And I think it's visible for the judges. Um, but again, Zeng Wiley going to another level. She's Her pace, her accuracy, the power on her strikes... For 115 pounds, I mean, I would like to see who hits harder than Zhang Wailei because she's an absolute dynamo, but again, it's getting better. Now, what's the one hole in her game, potentially? Well, I guess it would be the wrestling. Strong argument, she beat Rose Namajunas in that first encounter, but, uh, you know, she lost maybe some of the striking exchanges, and then Rose mixed in two very timely takedowns. So when she came back against Joanny and Jacek, that was her first camp in Arizona with Harry Cejudo and company in. My God, I mean, did she ever look strong, powerful, wrestling on a whole other level, took down Joanna three times, basically at will, overpowered her, and then ends up knocking her out. One of the most decorated, most coveted strikers of all time, but more specifically at a women's straw weight, Joanna and Jacek. And again, just that pace, that volume, that pressure. Uh, the first time they threw down, it was like Joanna could take that damage, but her face is swollen. Uh, her, she's got like an egg growing out of the top of her head with that hematoma. It was like mm -hmm. some nasty stuff. Carla's not going to take that same amount of punishment saying why just gets through to her. And with Carla, it's like she's killer be killed on her wrestling. She's the second best wrestler in the division. When she fought Tatiana Suarez, she got taken down nine times, got zero. Since then, geez, she can go out there and take down Alexa Grasso, Michelle Watterson, Marina Rodriguez, Yao Jonan, Rose Nama Yunus. You can, you can muster up some takedowns on them. Um, it's the in-between. You know, that fight with Rose her last time out, terrible fight. It's the fact that nothing happens on the feet, and then you mix in maybe a takedown or two. 
versus versus uh, Zhang Wailei, even if you mix in that takedown or two, it's like she still battered you standing, right? Rose didn't do anything. Rose beat Rose. That's ultimately what happened, you know, and handed over the title to Esparza, which is cool because of, like, the journey that Esparza's been in. Wins the inaugural belt off the Ultimate Fighter, beats Rose, and then since then has just been, like, a journey woman of the division. But that wrestling's been key. That wrestling's been effective. And against Zhang Wailei, I don't see it. So... I know that Joanna fight that you're referring to is so long ago at this point, but I, I actually agree with you 100%. That was that moment where it was like, oh, shit, I can't actually take her down. Well, what do I got standing? And it's like, not enough, not enough. It was enough against Claudia Gadelia because Claudia Gadelia just flat gassed out. It was enough against, you know, a couple of, of these opponents here and there because she could just touch them up a few times. She throws that lazy jab. She really gets after you with this takedown. But against Zhang Wailei, she's running into a different animal altogether. So uh, I, I, I do agree with the money line. But even though it's a little thick, I think you want to try to improve it. 25 minutes is a long time to be in there with her if you can't get her to the ground. And if, because I don't think Esparza is going to do that, I got that TKO prop. I will say, Cody, as someone who just got burned by the uh, <laughs> Pollyanna Vienna, uh, I should have taken the inside the distance. When the price was like negligible. By, by KO? No, no. What I'm saying is take the <laughs> uh, take the inside the distance. It's like there's minus one tens out there. The best I see is plus one twenty on the KO slash TKO. Do I think the KO slash TKO is way, way, way more likely? Yes. But I don't want you to feel like I did. When I could have taken a plus two sixty, but I took a plus three hundred. And um yeah, I mean it would have changed the entire night. So uh that's why, I'm, that's why I would stick to the inside the distance. Who knows? Crazy things happen in MMA. I don't think that she's going to submit Carla Esparza. Don't get me wrong. But for the minuscule difference in the prices, I think inside the distance is a lot safer. Uh, moving on down, we've got Dustin Poirier taking on Michael Chandler in most people's pick for fight of the night. I don't know how you could... Uh, if you're not a fan of this fight, you don't like MMA because this should be absolute. I mean, pretty much who has been like, you know, he hasn't exactly won every single fight, but it's like who has been a bigger fan favorite since like entering the UFC four fights. He's two and two in those fights, but Chandler has been an absolute dog out there. Just going to absolute war. The Gaethje fight, like I can't believe nobody got finished there. Obviously, Charles had Charles... Really, really hurt um, in round one. And Charles came back and finished him in round two. Dan Hooker just absolutely flatlined him. Tony, oh my God, rest in And Tony's, Tony Ferguson's at Harvard University. Congratulations uh, to that. I don't know how that, he's at the business school there, which is, I mean, Fight Pass should definitely uh, be following Tony Ferguson around Harvard campus. That's that's all I can say about that. Um, yeah, but Poirier, minus 225. Chandler plus 190. Poirier. He's a busy man these days. He's uh you know, he's got the hot sauce. Saw Pat Mayo. Pat Mayo had the uh the hot sauce here at the office and had no idea that it was Dustin Poirier's hot sauce. He grabbed it just at the grocery store. So like You're kidding, really? Por no, like yeah, I was just like, where'd you get this? I'm like, did you order it off of Amazon? And he's just like, man, he's like, I found it at Sobeys. And I was just like, wow. wow. That's a good Dustin distribution Poirier, international hot sauce, man. He's probably making good money off of that uh, at this is. point. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, basically, I'm drawn to Chandler here strictly because I expect chaos in this fight. 
I expect both guys to eat massive shots, and I see a plus 190 price tag uh, on a fight that I could really see going both ways. Um, both of them are... Uh, Poirier obviously has been knocked out before, but like that durability, like, you know, early in his career when he got knocked out against Conor McGregor, it's like people thought, or the Michael Johnson fight, people thought, oh, maybe this guy doesn't have a chin. It's like, he has a chin, trust me. He's been through some wars. He's, he's, he's excellent, but... I don't know. Crazy fight. Crazy results. Give me the plus 190 price tag here. I think both of these guys are just going to meet in the middle. It's going to be a dust dust ball, and hopefully uh, Chandler comes out victorious. Uh, what's your take here? Yeah, listen, you can do worse than Michael Chandler for plus money plays. The guy's going to fight for your dollar to the death if need be. He throws absolute vicious intent, and uh, he's a well-rounded, good fighter, former champion, very athletic, solid wrestling, durable when need be, uh, wrestling's off the hinge, and yeah, again, he's just got that right hand, so there's some guys when you just take a flyer on an underdog, it's like, well, does he have a legitimate chance? It's like Michael Chandler versus any guy in the division on any given night has a chance. It's just like, is he going to pull it together? And so, yeah, I, I'm not going to fault you whatsoever. I am going to go the other side, though, and take Dustin Poirier. I think I think exactly like you're saying. They're going to meet the center of the cage. They're going to throw down. Each guy's are going to have their moments. Uh, you know, Chandler's going to hit Poirier. Poirier's going to take it. Poirier's going to hit Chandler. And all of a sudden, over time, Chandler's going to be thinking to himself, why can't I see? Why are my eyes watering up? And that's because Poirier dipping his gloves in old Louisiana hot sauce <laughs> before the fight, that long term will just disintegrate your vision. You can't see. You can't fight, Paul. And I feel like it's probably going to be a somewhere late second round, third round TKO stoppage for Dustin Poirier. All jokes aside, though, Chandler's killer be killed like he's willing to go out on his shield and throw down. I just feel like he uh, has more of the durability issues. You've seen him in Bellator get absolutely starched. Speaking of guys that have had bad luck injuries, you know, he's had his ankle seized up in a fight with Brett Primus before. Cost a lot of people a lot of money. He fought an undersized Patricio Freite at 145 and, uh, and got beat up. Um, got knocked out in the first round. Pretty vicious knockout as well. He's willing to go out there and throw down, no doubt about it. But if he doesn't have his own way, things start to falter ever so slightly. Uh, in my personal opinion, the Charles Oliveira fight, you know, he takes a beat. Sorry, not the Oliveira fight, but the, the Justin Gaethje fight. He takes a career-altering beating in that fight, especially at his age. He's not the same young guy that's fighting Eddie Alvarez back in the day taking a beating. He's Asian, takes that beating. And then the Tony Ferguson fight. It's an epic knockout. It's a killer knockout you're going to see on highlight reel, highlight reels for a year to come. He lost that first round. It didn't look particularly good. And then he jungle kicked him in the second round and put him away. To me, Dustin Poirier, if he shows up in shape, then he's got a little better cardio. His boxing combinations are just good. He'll find the mark. He'll touch him up with his jab. He'll keep him at bay. He'll hit him and he'll hurt him. Once he hurts him, Chandler's going to throw recklessly. He's got a chance of catching Poirier, but I feel like Poirier will put it together. Now, he's getting a little bit older. He's a rich man. He made money from the Connor fights. He made money from pay-per-views. He's making money from the hot sauce. Like, why would he want it still? All fair points. Maybe his body's starting to regress a little bit. Again, I completely understand. But when I hear Michael Thomas Brown say, this guy's very highly motivated, in the gym every day, looks better now than he has or has, believes in him, I have that belief in Michael Thomas Brown that they're sending a, a good product to get the job done. So I think you're getting excellent plus money on, on Chandler. I don't fault you in the slightest bit. I just got a feeling that Poirier is going to take him out. Now, I don't love that price on Poirier, but I find it hard to believe that Poirier will beat him up the same way Gaethje did. You know, like you don't take two of those beatings back to back. I feel like Dustin puts him away. And if he can put him away, we're good. And let's not, you know, make any mistake about Poirier versus uh, Charles Oliveira. He had Charles right where he wanted him, right? Mm. 
He was putting a beating on him. And I don't know if he tired. I don't know if those nasty knees to the body zapped his gas tank. But fighting Charles is one of those things like you better get it done quick because the guy comes on the later the fight goes. Well, I guess not against Mugachev, but generally speaking, right? So so he looked good and then just faded off. Chandler, meanwhile, I didn't think he looked great, and then he caught some highlight real KO. If they throw down in the center of the cage, I feel like Poirier still got a little more to offer. So I will take Dustin Poirier, but again, to sweeten up that money line, I'm going to take the Poirier by TKO. That's fair. I'm not going to fight you. I think there's like plus 120s out on, on that. That's how I'd go about it. I think this is just going to be a wild, wild fight. Don't love the, yeah, the over-unders are like minus, you know, one and a half rounds. It could, yeah, it's a 50-50 proposition whether this goes seven and a half minutes. And I think that's that's about right, to be perfectly honest. All right, moving on. We've got uh, Chris Gutierrez taking on Frankie the Answer Edgar. Minus 225 Gutierrez, plus 190 for Frankie Edgar. Didn't think that we'd ever be in this spot, Cody. Interesting, no, no. to say the very least, you know. Frankie Edgar, the legend, fighting... Close to home. He's obviously from New Jersey. Um, and a sizable underdog against Gutierrez. I mean, Frankie Edgar, uh, in the Pedro Munoz fight, he took a lot of like, like, he took a lot of leg kicks there. And that's what Gutierrez is going to do. Obviously, the speed isn't quite there. Frankie's got to go out and shoot for takedowns pretty much immediately. The durability is not quite what it used to be anymore. But in fairness to Frankie, he's taking on some of the division's elite. Corey Sandhagen, uh, Marlon Chito Vera, Chan Sung Jung. It's just like Max Holloway. It's like he's fighting the who's who of the division. It's a little startling seeing him this big of an underdog against Gutierrez. But Gutierrez coming off of a career best performance last time out against Dana Bakary. You know, everyone kind of thought this guy was a decision machine. He'll just kick your legs. Um, well, he's got some extra tricks in the bag. Spinning back fist to elbows for the finish uh, in round two. Um, I kind of feel like, you know, Frankie's mobility is a little bit tarnished as he's gotten a little bit older. And I think those legs are going to get chewed up from distance. Wouldn't be surprised if this goes to decision. Frankie holds in tough. But I'll ever so slightly lean towards Gutierrez. I just can't put money on Frankie Edgar in the year 2022. That's that's where I that's where I fall on this. But uh yeah, I'll pick Gutierrez. I don't think I'm gonna be betting this fight. What about you? I'm gonna take the plus money on Frankie Edgar. Uh again, this is a card that I do agree with a lot of the favorites, but there's good plus money on Frankie Edgar to be had, and I'm willing to give it a shot. MMA is a very fickle animal, right? I mean, one point you're on top of the mountain, you're the greatest, everyone wants your autograph. The next, you're considered washed up and people want you to hang up their gloves. In Frankie's case, people are considering him washed up and want him to hang his gloves. But keep in mind his last fight against Marlon Vera, three takedowns, outstrikes on 94 to 88. So 94 significant strikes landed, three takedowns. Winning the fight, all three judges' scorecards, about to beat Marlon Vera, which would be considered an astronomical big win, very relevant in this division. And damn, he gets caught by like the nastiest front kick next to Michael Chandler smoking Tony Ferguson. Uh, and just like that, it's just like, yeah, man, he don't got it anymore. How could you be that competitive with Marlon Cheeto Vera, be a whisker away from beating him, and then be not competitive anymore? Frankie could still wrestle. You know, the guy gets takedowns in basically all of his fights. In terms of 
you know, that movement again. Yeah. Is it classic Frankie? No, but his ability to rack up numbers is still there. You've seen him get against Marlon Vera um, fight ended into the third round. He'd already racked up 94 significant strikes landed him versus Pedro Munoz. Again, there was a five rounder, but 135 still put up. Frankie's not what he used to be, but again, as someone that can maybe box a little bit, throw two, three punches at a time, throw up a little bit of volume, and then try to get mixed in those takedowns, I think he would be considered still serviceable. Now, here's the niche with with uh, Chris Gutierrez. I think he's talented. I think he's got nasty leg kicks. I think he's got dynamic striking, like you said. Power underrated. You know, on paper, doesn't really knock out a whole lot of guys other than, you know, Vince Morales. He stops him on leg kicks. And then that last fight with Dana Backrell. Previously to that, not a whole lot of these big fight-ending moves, but it's his 37% takedown defense that is that's concerning to me. He gives up takedowns in basically every single one of his fights. He got taken down by Dana Baccarell. He got taken down by Felipe Corrales. He got taken down by Andre Ewell. He got taken down twice by Cody Durden. Completely outgrappled by Cody Durden two years ago. That's two right. years ago, back take, can't get up, no answer, giving up takedowns to Cody Durden, who's a flyweight who took the fight on a week's notice and had a full-time job. And now two years later, I know he's getting better. You can see it in him. His movement's better. His ability to get back up. No doubt he's getting better. I just mean there's a good chance here that Frankie can do exactly what he did against Yair Rodriguez, which is expose the fact that this kid's got a 37% takedown defense, right? He gets taken down in all of his fights. And when Frankie gets takedowns, he does work on top, man. Five minutes of top control against Marlon Vera in his last fight. And we're worried that he can't take down Chris Gutierrez. So, like, if Frankie's the favorite, he's got red flags all over the place. Don't bet Frankie Edgar. But at this kind of dog money, like, yo, did totally interested. Totally interested. So, for the time being, lock me in for a Frankie Edgar uh, underdog shot. He's 41 years old, Cody. That's usually a thing that you would say. And you would normally give me shit and be like, man, you're an ageist. You know, this guy still got it. Frankie's one of those uh, ageless wonders of the world. You know, he's like a Yoel Romero. He's like a Jose Aldo. Ooh, I actually really not all that old. Jose is not that old. But uh, these guys that, for whatever reason, have just had vintage performances through the year. Frankie won a world title at 155. He challenged for a world title at 145. And now he's down at 135 pounds. And he's like almost like jobber status. It's like, oh, damn. It's like, well, who are these jobbers that he's fighting? Oh, it's the top exactly. of the it's division. Like Marlon, Marlon Vera. It's like, damn, okay, so top five guy in the division. Oh, Corey Sanhagen. Okay, so top three guy in the division. Uh, you know, Chang Sun Jung, Max Holloway, Brian Ortega, uh, Brian Ortega, sorry, Yair Rodriguez, Pedro Munoz. These guys are all the best of the best. Now, when you look at Chris Gutierrez, it's like Dana Baccarell, Felipe Corrales, Andre Yule, Cody Durden. Shit, dog, most of these guys don't got jobs with the company anymore. In fact, Morales is coming off a loss. Freitas is cut. Durden's coming off a loss. Andre Ewell's cut. None of them have had any recent success. None of them are top 15. None of them are even knocking at the door at top 15. And he's going to go from that bro, to be Bro, bro, don't disrespect. It's possible. It's, bro, it's possible. Yeah. Who, don't disrespect do Cody Durden like that. He's coming. He's on a two-fight winning streak. Yeah, my bad. I, I I misspoke. He smoked out Carlos Moda the last time out. That and was he actually beat GP buys before better. that. Yeah, I don't put a whole lot of stock in that, but I'll give of him course. his credit on, on on the Carlos Moda fight for sure. Kid took the fight on a week's notice. I get it. He was still a good fighter. Yeah, I'll put some respect on Cody Durden's name. But, but you're right, Cody Durden, uh, two fight winning streak at 125 pounds. And for the record, he fought JP buys and a guy that took the fight on a week's notice. <laughs> yeah, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. 
What I'm saying is that there would be a big talent jump. I would be making, you know, I would be arguing points for Chris Gutierrez to win if you were if, giving if the plus lines 185 were for Chris Gutierrez. Yeah, of course. Too. It's like, yeah, maybe he just dances to the outside and he's got too much mobility and he kicks the leg. But I'll tell you one thing, one of Frankie's best takedowns always has been, I'm hoping always will because he'll need to come Saturday, is catches kicks. He catches the kick and he drives left hand forward, picks up the leg, drives forward, gets the takedown. Um, if he ends up on top of you, he's... He's got nice little elbows, nice little short top, smothering top game. And again, at 41 years old, it's like, oh, most guys are get, definitely going to regress. The regular human beings of the world are going to regress. Frank Yeager's an animal, man. He is an absolute animal. Work ethic off the charts. Guys that train with him in the room tell you how good he is. It's that Father Time is actually the greatest champion of all times. And Father Time is, is, is kind of getting the better of him lately. So keep in mind, if that front kick doesn't KO him against Cheeto Vera, we're not even having this discussion. We're talking about him being a minus know, 300 Frankie. favorite. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, you know, MMA is a crazy score, so it goes the other way. I just see the live money on Frankie. The only one thing that God I will be, it, I am concerned about, and we can move on. I know we'll move on, though, is that he's announced his retirement, correct? He said this is his last fight. <sighs> You know you love those narratives. No, Guys who say this. that they're going Guys to retire never, never win. win. They yeah. never you know, never go my, out. That's my one concern. You never go that's out the door. Concern. You know. Yeah. You never it never you know, they have to drag you out the door. You never go out there nicely. <laughs> like not in this sport. No. It always ends badly. Um that's usually how these things shake out. I don't know. I mean for the purposes of I'll maintain my Gutierrez pick, but that may change because Cody talked a little bit of sense, and I love betting underdogs. So, Frankie, I mean, all you would have to really do is get those takedowns, hold position for two rounds, and then just don't get deaded in round three. Like, it's not, if it was a five-round fight, I would be a little bit more worried. But the path is most definitely there for Frankie Edgar. So don't be shocked if uh, if I turn up on Saturday morning with a, with a Frankie Edgar ticket. Moving on down, we've got Dan Hooker taking on Claudio Puelas. Hooker is a minus 140 favorite. Claudio Puelas, the leg lock specialist, can be had for plus 120. What's your take here, buddy? So this is another case where, like, I see all the time people are like, Hooker is done. He is done. It's like done to what extent? Done fighting for top five type uh, opponents? Yeah, yeah. D done in terms of he's going to make a serious run at the title? Yeah, I'm going to agree with you. Done in terms of his career? Like, oh, I don't know about that. Again, you got to look at the names, and he's won one of his last five fights. Those opponents that he's lost to include Dustin Poirier, former champion, Michael Chandler, former title challenger, former Bellator champion, Islam Akachev, current champion, and Arnold Allen, who very might, might get the next title shot or is within a fight or two from getting the next title shot. So that's as elite as elite possibly gets. The one win over Nazrat Hackcross in the mix, I'm not a huge Nazrat guy, but it's still a relevant win, and he looked really good against him. So I can't take too much away from him. I just don't think he's elite, and they've kind of thrown him into a lot of those situations. So... Has he been, you know, has he been showing his best results? Is he in the best shape he's ever been? No, nah, probably not. His legendary durability is compromised. Barbosa was the first guy, Edson, the first guy to really test it, rip him to the body, stop him. But that wasn't a headshot KO. Chandler rips off his head with that dynamite explosive power, which is why I don't fault you for taking that plus money on it because he lands that baby on you. I mean, it's a nuclear right across the lips. You're done. And since then, it seems like durability could be an issue. Now, Arnold Allen, not really known for his power, his finishing abilities, just straight up 
you know, mobs him up, corrals him, and just bombs him with shots. I mean, it's like an endless combination and knocks him out. That is going to be a winning strategy against Hooker if he has these durability issues. But Claudio Puelas isn't that guy. He's honestly failed to impress me every step of the way. Like, if you go back to his fight with Felipe Silva, I lost a ton of money on that fight. It was at your house, actually. And Felipe Silva murders him for the first two rounds. Drops him, hurts him with everything he lands on him. And in the third round, he rolls out a bum-ass knee bar and buddy taps. It was, like, devastating, devastating. But he was getting killed. The next win is uh, Anderson Silva's buddy, that Marcos Mariano. Oh, what yeah, was like he doing in the UFC? One of the biggest frauds outside of, like, CM One of Punk. the biggest frauds of all time. So he he squeaks by on a fight he looks terrible in, and then he and then he beats Anderson's buddy. And then he gets Jordan Levitt, who the fight's awful, right? It's actually quite close, but he lands 20 significant strikes over the course of 15 minutes, but he, he muscles up a couple bump takedowns against Levitt. That's something that won't work here, but it's something that worked in there. Again, failing to unimpress. His fight with Chris Grootsmacher, Grusmacher, look, I don't know. I don't know what was up with Grusmacher, but just if you rewatch the fight, especially if you know other Grusmacher fights, like his pace is gone, his cardio is gone. He was coming off a bit of a layoff. It's a bad performance against a low-level guy. And then his last time out against Clay Guida, that would be considered his best win. But Clay, one of these guys that just has seen better days. So he's put together a five-fight winning streak. And I mean, come on, I, I can't hold that against him. I can't take that away from him. It's solid. It's impressive. And beyond all that, the kid's young, man. The kid's very young, and he's clearly making improvements. To me, the issue is, where is he actually good? Is he a striker? It's like, no. He does not seem to have no big power. He walks into a lot of shots. His head's up in the air. Defensively, he is not sound, and he has low volume. It's like, okay, can he wrestle? Not really. He's been getting takedowns. But, bro, it's super low level. He's not physically all that strong. He'll get these little trip-type takedowns on you, but that's about it. His grappling's solid. If he ends up on top of you, you can do something. But all of that is rendered moot against someone like Dan Hooker, who I think is going to butcher him standing and has the takedown defense to keep this fight standing. Stay to the outside. Use that volume. If you do get clipped by something, Puelas doesn't have that same power that a Michael Chandler does. Mm -hmm. doesn't have that same power that some of the best guys in the world have. So if you take a shot from Puelas, that's fine. He's not a 100 significant strikes type guy. He's a mix in a few takedowns and cling on to you type guy. And I think Hooker can still beat that type of guy. So again, I'll take Dan Hooker. I would love to take Hooker by TKO. But one thing about this Puelas kid is going back to that Felipe Silva fight, he can take a shot, man. He can take a shot. And he's one of these guys that's willing to go completely unconscious to get the job done. So to me, Hooker doesn't stop him. He just puts a beating on him and wins the fight by decision. So I will take Dan Hooker. But again, being that he's on this run, even though it's elite guys, he's on a bad run and Puelas is in a positive run. It's like, yeah, eventually I'm going to get caught by this type of matchup. I think Hooker's still got a little something left in the tank, which is enough to beat Puella. So sign me up for the hangman. Yeah, I'm with you on that. And actually, I don't think we're in any sort of rush to add Hooker because, I mean, this line opened up at like minus 200 and people have been betting Puellas. Like that's where the... the they think the, Hooker's the, done, which is fair, but... Which is fair. He's been taking on, yeah, like some of the best of the best. Like, don't get me wrong. If this goes to the ground, Claudio Puellas grabs a hold of hooker's leg like you're in you know your butt is fully puckered at that point um but on the feet this shouldn't even be remotely competitive to be perfectly honest and uh hooker's been through some wars maybe his durability is a little bit compromised but i haven't seen too much from claudio puelas stand-up game to think of that as much of a threat it's just it's strictly like disengage Stay at range, and you should absolutely dominate. So, yeah, hooker for me as well. Moving on down, we've got Renato Moicano taking on Brad Riddell. Moicano, minus 120 favorite. Riddell 
is the ever so slight underdog at plus 100 who you got yeah i mean listen it's a dog or pass but you're not really getting any dog money on either guy brad riddell i would love to pick because i think him at his best wins this fight he's the better striker he's got uh good solid takedown defense and i think he just stays at the outside puts combinations together counter punches for the most part but i, I do think he gets the job done but, but again, when you look at body language and confidence and all this and that, Brad don't seem the same to me whatsoever. Like, this is a guy that was supposed to be, you know, he's Israel Adesanya's kickboxing coach, and he's one of the next great lightweight contenders, and he's on a solid run. But again, you got to look at, like, the results. And the results in his case is the Alex De Silva fight. He gets taken down a couple times, gets controlled in the cage, uh, wins the fight. Not a great performance. That Drew Dober fight, he got lit up by Drew Dober. He was in all sorts of trouble. Rallies back, beats Dober, concerning results, but still good, solid victories. And then the last two, the Rafael Fiziev fight, you don't want to hold anything against him, but this is elite striker versus elite striker. And he looks super gun-shy. Like, he didn't want to sit down on any of his punches. He kept trying to counterpunch or just, like, touch and go and get out of there. Fiziev was marching him backwards. Everything was landing a lot more impactful. And uh, eventually, he ends up getting knocked out by Fiziev, but... Just it, not like yeah, maybe it's a confidence thing. You just didn't really want to like sit in there and like exchange with them. And then when Jalen Turner's last time out, it was much of the same. Turner's huge for the weight class and definitely does hit, but like he got dropped immediately into that fight. Tried to backpedal and then eventually gets caught in that guillotine choke and subbed unconscious. So my only my only issue is is that he was supposed to be this wrestler. Uh, sorry, this uh this counter wrestler. You know, like sprawl and brawl. Like he he'll be able to stuff a few takedowns and then use this world class striking. But now you're seeing him against other strikers. Drew Dober, uh, Rafael Fiziev, his last time against Jalen Turner. And, like, he's getting caught and he's getting hurt and he's losing a lot of these exchanges. His volume is starting to regress. He's not landing tons of shots because he's kind of, like, overthinking it and not trying to make any mistakes. Now against Hinato Makano, that might be enough, right? Go back to that sprawl and brawl tactic. Stuff his takedowns, stay to the outside, outwork him. But Makano's got a good way of getting that right hand to go through. He's got decent volume. He just got killed by Rafael Dos Anjos' last time up, but showed a ton of heart and was continuously coming forward and was landing some decent shots at time. He's long. He's rangy. I think a lot of opportunities to find the target. It's just like I don't have a ton of confidence either way. The official pick for me is going to be Brad Riddell. Brad Riddell by decision. I just don't love it. Yeah, official pick for me is going to be Moicano. Um, I my my struggle with Riddell is that when he gets into those exchanges, like the Drew Dober fight, is that he leans on his wrestling. It's like if things get a little bit shaky for him, he leans on his wrestling. It's like I think that's a recipe for disaster. That being said, like, Drew, Drew Dober is a much better striker than Renato Moicano, or at least a more powerful striker. Um, I've been kind of outside of the, the RDA fight. I've been kind of impressed by like the recent improvements from. Uh, from Moicano, like the Herbert fight. I mean, Herbert, long striker, and he was just able to take him down constantly, like basically whenever he wanted to. Uh, Alexander Hernandez able to take him down two times. You obviously, you know, his chin isn't exactly great, but like I haven't seen crazy, crazy power from Brad Riddell. Sure, he could knock him out, but it's uh, he, he seems like more of a technique striker than a than a power striker to me. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a very, very close fight. It's lying correctly. Am I going to end up with money on it? Probably not, unless there's like a crazy Moicano by sub prop that gets released. Um, Moicano, I'm going to ever so slightly lean to in this spot. we got Dominic Reyes taking on Ryan Superman Span. Reyes is a minus 210 favorite. Span can be half plus 180. Cody, 
your thoughts. I I know this one's probably a bad call, but I'll I'm spam underdog and I think on Ryan spam. Ooh. Uh, it's yeah no to me it feels like a spam underdog play because it's not like I have any real great reason other than like pure narrative and speculation. Um, but yeah, I I just think on a card that I again agree with a lot of the favorites. I feel like there's maybe some live underdog status here for Ryan Span. Looking at uh looking at Dominic Reyes. Yeah, listen, is he talented? Sure, but he was always green. Like he got a late start to MMA. He's a former collegiate football player who kind of middled away for a bit, and then now you're thrust into the UFC limelight. It's like he had a quick rise. Those wins, keep in mind, right? Are I don't want to say like like. Every win in the UFC is huge. You want it at the highest level. It's great. And when you beat a named opponent, it's great. And then that that leads to this, this falsehood that it's like you're beating all the best guys. You are one of the best guys. But it's where were those guys at when you beat them? Because in order to get a name, you have to fight for a long time. If you fight for a long time, you may not be the same guy anymore. Looking at his run, it's filled with good names. Jared Cannonier. Oh, Jared Cannonier is not a 205-er. He's a middleweight. 20-pound drop he made from that. Okay, fine. Alvin St. Prue was not Alvin St. Prue at the time. He's a washed-up former title challenger at the end of his rope. Volkan Uzdemir is a former title challenger who's been on a terrible run. Chris Weidman. Chris Weidman is a former middleweight whose body is completely shattered and broken down. So I can't take anything away from the wins. You're beating guys at the highest level. But again, that gets you into this title fight with John Jones. And I actually took Dominic Reyes in the John Jones fight. And watching it, it's like, dude, he's ultra-competitive. Did he win? Did he not win? I thought... I felt uh, better about it than a lot of people did. A lot of people were like, we got straight Rob, we got straight Rob. I was like, I don't know, Jones may have won that fight. But it was like him fighting an unmotivated Jones. That in it, result in itself is going to uh, leapfrog him to being one of the best 205ers in the world. But one has to wonder if it wasn't just another case of John Jones toying around with his food. He has a tendency to do that. He did it with uh, Anthony Smith. He did it with Aubin St. Prue. He does it in a lot of these fights. He just goes through the motions. It's part of being so dominant and sometimes you don't show up. And in this case, yeah, he just kind of went through the motions. So the two subsequent efforts, or two subsequent fights is what we really have to key in on. And in those cases, Jan Blockwitz puts a beating on him, right? Every time Jan would land, it was impactful. He didn't like it. He didn't like getting hit. Jones wasn't sitting down on shots. Jones generally doesn't sit down on shots. Jan did, and Jan beat him up pretty good. Stops him by TKO. That was a big underdog win for Jan Blakowicz, who captured the light heavyweight title. Nobody saw it coming. Very few people saw it coming. And also, very few people saw Jan, a career decision guy, for the most part, go out there and finish him in, which he did. Finished him clean. So then Reyes comes back versus Yiri. And, like, if you do have durability issues or if you do have confidence issues or if you're not totally sure of your striking acumen, Yiri's just a bad guy to be in there with, man, because he's going to hit you. When he hits you, it's going to hurt. And in this case, you know, I can't fault him. He tried to fight him valiantly, but he got swarmed up and he got beat up on. When I think about Ryan Spann, I feel like he is a good technical rangy kickboxer. He has big power. You've seen him hurt and stun a lot of guys many times before. And if Reyes approaches him with this kind of game plan of we're going to sit there and we're going to kickbox, I feel like Spann's going to have a lot of moments. If he has a durability issue, if he has a confidence issue, if he has any type of issue, Spann may be able to capitalize and take advantage. He's been fighting actively. He's still young. He's still improving. I think he's live here. And for Reyes, he's had a few injuries. You think of him as a super prospect. Because it was just a few years ago, this guy was like the next big thing, right? He, if he would have beaten John Jones, he was like, oh, finally someone, you know, took over John Jones's uh, throne. And this guy's that next great guy. He's 32 years old. He's already a little bit banged up. He's been battling injuries. And he hasn't fought a year and a half. Those, to me, are all reasons for why 
you could go out there and lose a fight. And if you're going to say he's two to one favorite, uh, yeah, to me, I, I got to take a sniff the other way. So I did take Ryan Spin, but again, it's not, I don't feel as good about this one as maybe some underdog play other ones, but, uh, I just know if I have Dominic Reyes on a ticket, it's like that he's going to be the one that's shit in the apple pie. And I'm going to sit and I'm going to think to myself, man, why was I so big on Reyes? And all of these things that we just talked about are going to come up where it's like, yeah, you know what? Jeez, he does have the layoff. Jeez, he has lost his last three fights. The last two by knockout against guys that were perhaps, well, you is a huge power puncher. Uh, maybe not Jan. They hurt him. Is he confident? He's 32 years old. There's ring rust. These are all problems to have. And Ryan Spann, because the casual fan, doesn't know who he is. He hasn't fought John Jones. He hasn't taken the the former goat, you know, to the brink. He hasn't fought these top guys. So they have no interest in betting you. They're going to go the other way. And I think because of that, we might be able to find some value by uh, by taking spam. Oh, I'm, that's terrifying to me, to be perfectly honest. But just hit a pass. I mean, dog or pass. That's the, you, you don't have to bet every dog. You can just hit that pass. <laughs> well, there's other dogs that I'm going to scatter on. I, I'm going to pick Dominic Reyes here. I just think uh, if this fight does get extended, which a lot of spam fights do not, Reyes should absolutely like lap, lap him in, uh, in volume. Like span, like, what, we're, we're not that far removed from span edging out a split decision victory over Sam Alvey. Yeah, people that forget game. that like this guy's a great hammer not exactly a great nail it's like he goes out there he finishes guys early or he gets finished early when he's went to decision it's pretty uninspiring stuff against sam alvey there you know um it's been a tough run for dominic reyes but it is literally against you know the best yeah the the the, the goat of 205 the guy who took the belt after that goat left the division and then the current champion of 205 pounds. So it's like he's had a pretty tough run. Span hasn't fought anybody of that caliber. Um, Johnny Walker knocked this guy out in the first round. Like, I, I don't think the line is too inaccurate, to be perfectly honest. Like, if this fight gets a little bit extended, Reyes should be able to, like, outvolume him. Um, just keep the fight upright should have an advantage on the feed like where i would get concerned about him is if he's um if he's grappling if he's going down to the mat with span who has some pretty slick submission skills uh i'm gonna pick reyes on this program moving on we got uh aaron blanchfield a minus 400 favorite she takes on molly meatball mccann who can be at for plus 300 cody you know me I, I've like I've I've bet it doesn't make any sense and maybe I should just avoid this situation altogether. But like, you know, I've bet Meatball Molly has been a massive favorite in like her last two fights, and I've taken like the massive dog shot on them. Now we actually have an opponent that, in theory, you know, can take her down, control her, do all of that type of stuff, and I'm like, what am I missing? Like the the shot seems to be like you know to take Meatball Molly here. Do I think she's going to have another spinning elbow finish? Probably not, but she's done it in her last two fights, so who am I to say? Uh, Blanchfield was met with a little bit of resistance last time out against uh, J.J. Aldrich. Wasn't able to get the wrestling going. J.J. Aldrich actually was credited with two takedowns in that spot. Maybe it was just a bad week. Maybe it was just a bad day. I don't know, but she didn't have her best stuff. She did find the, uh, you know, the, the standing guillotine choke in that spot but 
Meatball Molly's, you know, she's she's went through the grinder and now this is she's one of the most popular uh female fighters in the UFC right now from the Barstool um you know, being signed by Bar- Barstool, you know, it's really raised her stock. Uh I imagine every single Meatball not named Molly, uh you know, all the Barstool guys, all the casual betters are going to have cash on uh on Mo- Molly McCann, but it's like if Blanchfield isn't getting takedowns and getting this, this to the mat immediately, I could see this being a lot more competitive than the line suggests. I'm leaning towards uh, McCann strictly because of the number. Uh, what's your take here, buddy? Yeah, well, listen, I was calling Aaron Blanchfield Aaron Blanchimov after her first couple of fights in the UFC. Like, this girl fights like a Russian, man. She's just relentless with her pressure and her grappling and her takedowns. And she's only 23 years old, has already had a very promising career, has already defeated a bunch of solid competition on the regional scene. She's going to be a factor for years to come, and she's definitely going to get a title shot. Or she'll get very close to the title at some point. She's 23, and she's already this skilled. Her fight with um, Sarah Alpar... In her debut, Alpar is a wrestler. Alpar can wrestle, dominates three takedowns, smashes her with those three takedowns, easy money. She fights Miranda Maverick, one of the most physical girls in the division, one of the best wrestlers in the division. Maybe not one of the best wrestlers in the division, but very physical, good grappler. Seven takedowns, dominated. So, yeah, dude, totally troublesome that she couldn't take down JJ Aldrich. 0 for 4 and was taken down twice. Lost the first round to JJ, was not looking great in the second round, but pulled it through and then looked a lot better in the third. I got to chalk that up to learning experience, growing pains. J.J. Aldrich is actually very solid and came in in excellent shape. Um, And to me, what was a good takeaway for Blanchfield is that you know that she can grapple. You know that she can wrestle. You know that she's got good cardio. But she hasn't really had to show you a whole lot of those other skills. Against J.J., she could not take her down. That was problematic. Now you have to strike with J.J., who's a fine striker, a former training partner or current training partner, of Rose Namajunas, longtime training partner of hers, right? And Blanchfield made the adjustment of, yo, I can't take her down, YOLO mode, and she just fought her like a Mexican, forward pressure, through through hands, did excellent, did an excellent job of just trying to make it a gritty fight stand-up, and did win. I thought she won, did what she needed to do. So to me, it was good that she was able to make those adjustments, especially as a young fighter. So I, I do like what I see out of Blanchfield, but she's got to go back to her wrestling for this one because McCann is wild standing. She's erratic. She'll throw easily over a couple hundred significant strikes, land a hundred of them. And like you said, back-to-back wins with that spinning knockout by a spinning elbow. Yeah, it's nasty. It's unpredictable. It could change the course of the fight at any time. But I got to go back to her fight with Laura Procopio, whereas like when you're not willing to stand in front of her, you take her down at will. Her two losses, her last two losses, Laura Procopio, Taylor Santos, she got taken down and combined 12 times, held down for the vast majority of it. For offensive wrestling, she likes to mix it in fights. All of Molly McCann's wins, for the most part, she makes in a couple takedowns or two. But if you've got that wrestling advantage over her and you want to use it, the takedown defense isn't quite there. The get-up game isn't quite there. The technique isn't quite there. These strong, solid grapplers will take advantage. Laura Procopio uh, is a BJJ black belt, but otherwise not a, a good talent. I believe she's released from the promotion, truth be told, but has that BJJ black belt. So when the fight got down to the ground, you saw a big you know, gap in skill. Same thing with Taylor Santos, gap in skill. Even Diana Belbita took her down once upon a time. And overall, Molly McCann shows off a 47% takedown defense in the UFC. So numbers alone suggest that Blanchfield is going to take her down. Mm-hmm. If Blanchfield takes her down, she's got excellent top control. You're not getting up. If she does that for two of the three rounds... 
Molly's really going to have to land some spinning back elbow in the third round because otherwise she's a volume puncher, not a power puncher. And I don't think she's going to be able to fight her way uh, 0-2 out of the hole. So she's got to keep it competitive early, and I don't know that she's going to do that. So I got Blanchfield, but I'm going to try to chase the price and go by Blanchfield by decision. Fair enough. All right, we got Andre Petrosky taking on Wellington Terman. Minus 200, Petrosky plus 170. Terman, who do you got? Yeah, this one scares me just because I like I don't like Petrovsky. I'm not particularly interested in running and, and cashing him, especially at uh, you know heavy money line status. But it's also like I don't know if I want to take Wellington Terman this time around. Petrovsky, there's nothing about him that like I shouldn't like. The dude is absolutely shredded, brick shit house, ripped up, a solid wrestling, you know, wrestled collegiately, solid BJJ skills, you know, BJJ black belt competes at uh, in tournaments, fairly good level. Um, and then of course his last time out against Nick Maximov, who's a BJJ black belt, Diaz brother guy, former collegiate wrestler as well. He just completely sleeps him. So like the guy's athletic, he's powerful, he's got skills everywhere. He is a problem. But to me, his gas tank is like super suspect, man. Uh, he's got carries a lot of muscle, as I talked about. And if you can cause him, uh, sorry, this is this is again the thing on him. If you watch the tape, he's completely gassed out. So he's he's got bad cardio. But if you look at the results, he finishes these guys in the third round a whole lot. It's almost like, what's it called? A conundrum? Like, it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense. It's like him versus Michael Gilmore. Gilmore's a bum. Should have taken him out in one round. Mm -hmm. Instead, he gasses. He looks awful. I had had Petrosky round one. (laughs) And I was just like, this is like the biggest layup. Like, what are you doing? Dude, he fought awful. On the on the Ultimate Fighter previous to that, he gassed himself out and loses. Now he's fighting Gilmore in the tough finale, essentially, and he gasses, doesn't look good, but does get that third-round finish. Against Hughes and Ong, he had like six or seven submission attempts. Like, he had front headlocks, front chokes, guillotine chokes on this guy all day long, who didn't really look like he knew what the hell he was doing in there, by the way. And then still into the third round, he's gassed, but he puts him away. So, yeah, part of me is like, does he have a good gas tank? He's getting third-round finishes. The other part of me is like, nah, dude, trust me. He, he looks like he's going to fall over. Uh, you know, a brisk wind is going to topple him over. Eventually, they're going to max him up. Uh, they're going to match him up accordingly. Nick Maximoff, not that guy. Nick Maximoff runs into there and gets caught with that quick choke. Choke. Well, sure, we know the guy's explosive and dangerous for that first round. But I think if you extend him, despite the third-round finishes, I think if you extend him, you'd have a lot of, you know, a lot of success with him. Wellington Terman, meanwhile, again, there's not like there's anything super... Super like, uh, he doesn't have no X factor to him. There's no real big intangible. It's not like he's a great striker, great grappler, great wrestler. But one thing is he is young. He's fought in the better level of talent. He is like the main training partner for Glover Texera. And again, eventually he's going to be able to catch some of these lower level opponents. Petrovsky might be one of them. Um, his losses for the most part are to decent enough guys. Bruno Silva, Carl Roberson. I guess Andrew Sanchez to a much lesser degree, but his his being at 185 his last time out against Misha Cherkinov, he got taken down in the first round. He got controlled. He uh, ends up taking Misha's back. It was a slick back take. His jiu-jitsu looked pretty solid in that first round. It appeared he was starting to fatigue though pretty hard. Second round, he's gassed. He falls to the ground and he snatches up a real quick armbar. Now Misha, of course, high level BJJ black belt, but even him, like Turman, was able to find that arm and keep with it. I don't know that his cardio is great, but if he shores that up. He's going to be dangerous enough. Like he comes from that shoot-to-box background where he's down to march forward and throw hands, but his BJJ is probably where his game's best at. He just needs Glover to really hone him in. Now, he's a training partner of Alex Pereira on the card as well. One would have to imagine he's coming into this fight in good shape. And the thing with Petrovsky is, like, Wellington Terman conceivably is a better striker. 
So Petrovsky's going to take him down. Okay, he probably does. It's not like this guy's a fish out of water off his back. He's got good grappling. If he gasses, they're both going to be gassed. Mm-hmm. But Terman's live in all those scenarios. And if Terman shows up in shape, yeah, I'm really going to feel good about it. But that will be remain to be seen until the fight starts, of course. But uh, yeah, again, I, I'm going to take a slight flyer here over on uh, Wellington Terman. Yeah, same here, man. That's what I was kind of thinking. I actually watched Wellington Terman's interview today, um, like his media day interview. And he was talking about how like he's only been with Glover for a year. Um, and he's like, I've been making massive, massive improvements. He's like, I was on a losing streak before I did that. The English was actually really good considering he's only been here for a year as well. Um, but yeah, he was just saying that like the world of difference, like actually training with a, a legend like that has taught him so much about about his game. And like, yeah, I stare at this line and the biggest thing that jumps out to me, and I was on Petrosky against uh, Maximov as a plus 300 underdog. That's why, like, it always comes down to numbers in this game for me. And, like, that's how I make my bets. It's just, like, talk about recency bias. This guy was plus 300 um, (laughs) against a one-dimensional, you know, grappler. And then all of a sudden, he gets that first-round finish against Nick Maximoff, who we've kind of realized is, like, you know, one-dimensional, not entirely skilled, doesn't doesn't have a stand-up game. Obviously, getting the submission was a little bit surprising for him. But then all of a sudden, now he's 66% to win against a guy who can probably match him on the ground, likely has at least more technical striking. Petrovsky can definitely crack, throws wild, wild haymakers. Um, yeah, I think it's a very, very clear dogger pass situation here with Wellington Terman. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, we have, we are aligned on that dog shot. I got a lot of dogs this week too. watch. It's going to be another, another run of favorites like last week where the books pretty much got every, everything absolutely right from a money line perspective uh moving on down we got Otman azatar taking on matt the steamroller for rolla azatar is a minus 120 favorite for vola can be had for plus 100 what's in the bag Otman? what you got here cody yeah what is in the bag i think is the million dollar question and then the other million dollar question being like what's up with this guy where's he been at you know what i mean rich he He doesn't need to fight no but it was pretty crazy like he makes his debut he steamrolls team pecklin which is like oh yeah well that was set up for him to do so but it's like he's got legitimate power that's one thing you'll see on the tape is he'll sit down on his punches Mm -hmm. and you know a fast speedy right hand if he hits you it's gonna do a, a copious amount of damage Smokes him. So it's like, okay, well, let's give him Kama worthy. Kama's extremely talented, but does lack the ability to take a punch. And Ottman, same thing. It's a tailor-made opponent. He blows right through him. So now he's just been sitting on the sidelines doing his own thing. But it's interesting that they bring him back, two-year-long layoff, two-year-plus-long layoff. And again, it's like they give him a guy with durability issues. It's like the UFC does do Ottman as they tar favors. If you can't take a punch, you seemingly get into a contract agreement with to fight Ottman Azitar. So I don't know if he's like, I don't know. I'm not saying that he's giving anybody money. I just mean because he doesn't have to fight, it's not like you can give him a top challenger. It's not like you can give him a wrestler. It's not like you can give him something that's, you know, be considered bad for him. He'll only take the best fight for him. And when he signs on the dotted line, you kind of do see that that's similar trend in opponents. So yeah, the amount of power that Ottman Azitar has, I think that he is live for the KO and that he could be able to uh, hit Frivola. Frivola kind of does have a history with it. Uh, lost to Marco Polo Reyes once upon a time in the UFC. That's a bad look. But just like completely flatline a minute in, doesn't have the greatest chin. His fight with Lando Venata, it's a draw, 
uh dropped twice early in that fight like just pff, chin probably not all that good trains with Aljamain Sterling trains with Marab Devashvili you know known for that all-american grind known for for great cardio solid grappling skills a, a willingness to do it but if you can't take the hit well it's going to be kind of problematic um his last or that fight with Terrence McKinney seven seconds now we know Terrence McKinney is dynamite you know the guy can hit but I think I think it's all just part of a trend, right? You're getting knocked out by Marco Polo Reyes. Okay, fair. You're getting dropped by Lando Venata. You get knocked out in seven seconds by Terrence McKinney. You're liable in all these fights to get clipped with something and get knocked out. And I know his last time out, he was doing the knocking out against Geraldo Valdez. What was concerning to me in that fight is he dropped Valdez four times. He was all over Valdez. And yet he wasn't using his wrestling. It's like he's willing to engage. He's willing to strike. And that might be fun, but it'll also be to his detriment. So... I feel like I'm Amin Azatar is going to snipe him with something. And you got topology open? I do. Yeah, so normally it's like the fighter pictures. It's like it stays the same throughout their career. Someone uploaded it in like 2006. It's still there. But like he changed his specifically to a picture of what I like to refer to as broke back Matt. And uh, I don't know why he went with the cowboy look. Like why Why would you make that your profile picture for an MMA fighter? I'm so looking at I it. can't get behind broke back Matt here. I think Amin Azatar is going to, you know, pull the bag on him and uh, knock him out sometime in the first or second round. Yeah, I'm like really torn on this fight, to be perfectly honest. I'm more drawn to the under one and a half rounds, which like you can get some plus money on that. I mean, Azatar hits super, super hard. I'm not entirely sure like what he can do as a grappler. Obviously, Frivola has some, you know, wrestling upside in this in this spot. If he gets him to the mat, I know that Zaytar puts in some time with like Team Habib and all of those guys. But it's like, how good is this guy, you know, off of his back? If he gets taken down, I'm not entirely too sure. Um, more drawn towards, yeah, I'll I'll side with you with uh, Zaytar getting the finish, but I'm more drawn towards the under here. I think Frivola could take him down, submit him, make it look easy. More likely, uh, Ottman lands a big bomb in the uh in the first seven and a half minutes so that is my take all right we got carolina kovalkiewicz taking on silvana gomez juarez minus 120 kovalkiewicz plus 100 for uh gomez juarez and this one's like interestingly like the under two and a half rounds is like plus 110 like they are wise to silvana uh gomez juarez at this point that like you know her fights she hits hard she finishes people, um, and they're absolutely wild. But if she ends up in your guard, she's probably getting armbarred. Like that's that's pretty much just how her entire UFC career has gone. Submission defense, massive, massive liability. But this girl can crack, and she can crack early. Um, Kovalevich obviously coming in. She had had a horrible, horrible run. Everyone thought that she was probably retired, and then shows up and has one hell of a performance against Felice Herrig last time out. Uh, revived her career, and here she is in this spot. I think she's kind of getting disrespected. I think she's a much more complete fighter. Um, as long as she, I mean, who is like really absolutely throttled her on the feet? It's Jessica Andrade, who's like one of the most power, like one of the most noted power punchers in this division's history. Outside of that, I mean, the chin's always kind of held up. the The heart's always held up for Carolina. I think she's getting disrespected in this spot. Uh, Carolina Kovalkiewicz, 
at like a pick'em price seems more than fair to me. Um, a little bit long in the tooth, of course, but Gomez Juarez just seems like a one-trick pony. It's like if she doesn't get an absolute like crazy overhand right that lands, or you know, a very very big clubbing shot. I don't know what else she's got in the bag. Like, I don't even know what she looks like in, like, a full, like, 15 minutes. Like, she's a straw weight finisher, and we know how that goes. So, Carolina, for me, what about you? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to chalk this up to a dogger pass. Uh, again, probably looking to avoid it, but I'm going to go with a slight lean towards uh, Silvana Juarez, actually, the other way. Um, no disrespect to Carolina, like she's, you know, been a former title challenger. She's fought all the best girls of the division, but yeah, to me, she just doesn't appear to be the same. I know she looked better last time against Fleece Herrig. Fleece Herrig was going to retire after the fight regardless. And we all know that how that plays out and didn't look all the same. So Carolina got the win over there, but she's got 18% takedown accuracy, right? She's got one takedown scored in the UFC in the last five years. So if she's not going to look to grapple whatsoever, then it's like you're going to have a straight-up striking battle with uh, with uh, Silvana Gomez-Juarez. The issue with having a straight-up striking battle is, so far, no one's really had any success in doing that. Like, her three fights in the UFC, Lupita Godinez took her down five times in the first round because she did not want to stand and strike with her. It was a good move on her part. Her fight with Vanessa Dimopoulos, Van- Vanessa Dimopoulos got a hell of a chin on her, bro. Like, if there's one thing about Vanessa Dimopoulos, she will come forward, pressure you, and can take one hell of a shot. But, like... She drops her, made the mistake of jumping on top, and then got armbarred. And then her last time against Nali Yang, it was almost just like a matter of time, right? You see how much power this girl's got, but like you're saying, you know that she's got a lot of that early power, but how does it translate? Well, if you just want to strike with her and you're not going to try to take her down, then I, I don't know. I feel confident enough that she's going to be able to throw power and keep that pace for at least a couple of rounds. And Carolina's case, I don't think she's got some big... TKO ability. She doesn't have some big finishing power. She's got volume. She's got solid volume. But in throwing some of that volume, she's there to get hit. She oftentimes does get hit. Andrage, of course. Andrage got ungodly power. She melts her. But beyond that, you've seen her get outstruck in a few spots. Um, I could totally see her winning this fight. In fact, she's at American Top Team, one of the best gyms in the world, training with some of the best girls in the world. She probably comes out here and probably wins this fight. I just can't get behind it. Like, I, I don't know why. I just If she's not going to shoot a takedown, she's going to stand up the whole time. I got a bad feeling. Like, she's not as physical as uh, as Silvana. And if she's not, uh, she loses these striking exchanges. She might get TKO'd for no other reason than she's starting to get a little bit older herself. But that being said, Silvana's 37. This is a greasy fight. It's a greasy fight no matter what side you look at. Um, and so for that reason, kind of looking to avoid it. But if my man Pat Mayo is in the studio with you, prize pick Pat would be telling you, take a flyer on the underdog. And that's a cheap way out because this is a bookie always wins type fight. The favorite's minus 115. The underdog's minus 105. There's juice there's juice to the house on both sides. But technically speaking, one of them is the underdog. It's Silvana Gomez-Juarez. And uh, that's where I ever so slightly did decide to go. All right, we got Sungwoo Choi taking on Mike Trezano. Choi, a minus 160 favorite. Trezano can be at for plus 140. Who you got? Yeah, so Trezano is is another, you know, repetitive theme that we're seeing from a lot of these guys on the cards. Like, he is talented. No doubt he has talent. It's like you got to judge him based on what you're seeing recently, and he looks washed, man. He just looks disinterested. His uh, striking's not all that good. His striking defense is not all that good. He's getting hit in there. He's not letting his hands go. He used to be a volume guy with a lot of frontward pressure. 
but I just feel like you're seeing him get beat to the punch a lot more. Uh, he's not very confident. He's not very comfortable. And the results are speaking for themselves, right? His fight with Grant Dawson, he gets backed up. He gets beat up. That's fair. His fight with Ludovic Klein, close fight. When you rewatch that fight, strong argument that Ludovic Klein should have won the fight. He got four takedowns, right? Like, how did he not win that fight? It's not a great performance for Trezano. But again, you're seeing him not particularly comfortable in there. Him versus Akeem Duwadu. Now, I bet him pretty good in the Duwadu fight. Duwadu's a low-volume guy. If you look at all of his fights, he's low-volume. Other than his fight with Trezano, which Trezano literally just allowed him to tee off at range, didn't pressure him, didn't throw back, didn't do a whole lot, got doubled up, just seemed disinterested. And then his last fight against Lucas Almeida, he doesn't want to engage him. He's backing up, doesn't look comfortable, does land a knockdown like midway through the first round, and then even there, doesn't uh, pounce on him, doesn't take advantage, ends up getting knocked down twice himself. He's taking damage. He's slowing down. He's not reacting the same way. I'm not want to say he's done because he's young and he's obviously got skill and can go on and do other stuff. It just appears that he's not like going to get over the hump of one of these top 25 type guys. Now, Sugmo Choi's case, uh, you know, m much of the same. Like, you know, is he a middling, mid-level type guy? Yeah. It's just like I took the more positive takeaways from what you see from him. He's very long, ranging for this weight class. Solid enough Muay Thai. Uh, good kicks up the middle. Good teep to the body. Will work the head, body, legs. Very versatile like that. And does fight a long game. His wins, they look good, man. Other than Suman Maktarian, of course. But a win over Yusuf Zalal looked good in that fight. A win over Julian Arosa where he knocked Arosa out in a minute 30. That aged really good because Arosa's on a solid run. But the losses, you know, the Bruce Leroy fight, he hurt him in the first round. He dropped him in the first round, scored a knockdown, won the first, was winning the second. One bad mistake, Bruce Leroy takes the back, rear naked chokes. You can't take away from the skill that you saw in that fight. Solid striking, solid composure. One bad mistake, that's okay. And then Josh Kulabau was last time out. I don't really know what to tell you there. Kulabau does have a lot of power. I don't like Josh Kulabau. I really don't. But if there's one thing about him, uh, similar to uh, who just beat the shit out of Chase Hooper, um, Steve Garcia. Yeah, Steve Garcia is pretty one-dimensional. But like, bro, he does got legitimate power in his hands. That's one thing you can't take away from him. Uh, Kulabau has that power. And as a result, like, Chung, Detroit didn't look good, man. He was walking into shots. He got dropped twice. Um, I thought he did a pretty good job of, like, working his way back into the fight. Uh, maybe there was an argument. I thought there was an argument he won, had money on him, so it was a biased argument, but I thought he did a good job of working his way back into it, but they decided to give a split decision the other way. So again, you can see the skills in motion. You can see that there's something there. He's just making either a slight mistake or coming out on the wrong end of a slight split decision. It's just kind of bad luck type stuff. Trezano, he's not reacting the same. He's not moving the same. He's not fighting the same. He's not comfortable the same way. And in this fight, he's got two options. Option A move forward and be that same pressure guy. If he does, Choi's long, he's rangy. This is the big cage. He's going to just pick him off and throw up the volume. If he decides to not pressure him, Choi's long, he's rangy. He'll stay to the outside and just continuously use that work rate, use that left hand, use that kick up the middle. So in both scenarios, I feel like Choi probably does pull away. And normally I would say, let's juice it up, baby, and take that Choi by decision more specifically. But seeing Trezano get knocked out his last time out mm -hmm. like that, uh, I'm worried, man. He did like he got hit by Almeida, and he did not react well. And by comparison, when he drops Almeida, Almeida springs back up and he's back on him. When he gets dropped, it's like you can tell that there's some serious sting taken out of him. So I don't really think he's the same guy he used to be. You know, he's maybe potentially on the back nine and minus 165 range for Sung Wu Choi. Really, not all that bad. So let me just uh, let me just go ahead and just take that straight money line. 
Poor guy. He's on the back nine, and he's what? He's not old, man. He's not old at all. But thirty years body, old. Uh, Wash. Yeah, the body. The body works in crazy ways. Some guys like Frankie Edgar can get KO'd and come back and like still fight at an elite level. Some and listen, it's not necessarily his body's not reacting as much as your brain at some point starts being like, I don't like to get. Here's a good story for you. Me and Shoney Carter had to drive one time from like the Calgary. Uh, airport down to lethbridge alberta it was like a three-hour drive right uh it was a four-hour drive so we're driving down and he's got like a hundred fights dude this is a guy that fought pat milicic in the ufc back in the day uh was like one of the pioneers of the sport has been there done that and then in recent years has been getting his ass kicked by good guys you know he should have he should have retired a long time ago he's got way too many knockout losses he told the paramedic after the fight that he had 49 concussions uh he's done done when we're sitting in this car ride, the guy in the back, my boy Rod, was like, uh, how do you know when it's over? Like, How do you know when it's like, it's done, it's done? And then he says, he's like, when it starts to hurt. And it didn't really make sense at the time because it's like, dog, you're a pro fighter. Of course it hurts. But when you're a young man, when these guys are young men, they go through the rigors of training, they go through the fighting, they go through the sparring, they go through the sacrifice, they go through all that, and they can still keep on the other side. They can still keep competitive. But at some point you go in there and it's like, I don't want to get hit anymore. I'm tired of hurting. My hip hurts. I'm not sleeping well. Now all of a sudden it's like you're going to regress. You're not that same young hungry lion. If you want to be a top guy in the UFC, talk to any top guy. Talk to any top guy, top 15 guy, top 25 guy in the UFC. The vast, vast majority will tell you they think they could be the best in the world. They could be the world champion. Why? Because if you did not think you could be the best in the world, you wouldn't be doing this shit. Fighting is not for the for the regular person, right? You have to be an optimist. You have to be an optimistic person. I think I can win. I think I can clip him. I think I can pull the upset. Because if you're a realistic person, you're not fighting. And if you're a pessimistic person, you are not fighting, right? You have to have that inner self-belief. You have to have it. So a guy like Trezano, yeah, young, but it's like, what are the results like? Dude, you you robbed Ludovic Klein, right? That that Without that win, that puts him on a four-fight losing streak. The results are now getting worse and worse. Does that motivate you to get to the gym? Are you motivated now to get in there? I mean, you don't know more? this guy. And get beat up some more? No, I don't Maybe know. Maybe it this does. Is all completely... It could, it could, but I also feel like at some point it's like, man, what, what, what do you still, do you remember KJ Nunes? I mean, here's the thing is like, I think this is a very, very close fight. And like, uh, I remember KJ Nunes. Yes. But at the end of the day, it's just like, I mean, Sungwoo Choi got submitted in round two and got outstruck on the numbers by Alex Caceres. It's like, uh, you know, good veteran, but like. Not exactly a world beater by any stretch of the imagination. My problem with like backing Choi at minus 160 here is the volume. Outside of Suman Mokhtarian, it's like you never bet a Mokhtarian, um, as, we've, as we've said many times on this program. I mean, look, cool about 46 significant strikes. Um, Arosa was a first-round finish, obviously, as one as people do against uh, Arosa. Against uh, Zalal, 41 to 23. It's just like they're pretty low-volume fights. I wouldn't be shocked if this goes to a decision. Both guys land about 70 significant strikes. Maybe Trezano mixes in a takedown, and it's a split decision. Like... I don't know. I will yeah. ever so slightly lean towards Trezano. I wish he had more of a wrestling game than he does. Um, he's a Tiger Shulman 
uh, a guy and they're mostly kickboxers out at that gym. So yeah, I'll, I'll take Trezano for the purposes of the show. KJ Nunes, what do you have to say about him? No, it's just another guy. He beat Nick Diaz. He was the top of the world. And then you lose a couple of fights. And then like I knew guys that went down to Alliance MMA and trained with him. They're like, man, he walks into the gym, he comes by, he sits down, he pulls out his gym bag, he pulls out his gloves, he, he wraps his own hands, he does his left hand, he does his right hand, he looks around the gym, he pulls off his wraps, he puts them in his bag, he gets up and he leaves. He just didn't want to be there anymore. And then you saw from the performances, like, they look lethargic. Like, guys continuously are evolving. They're getting better. They're making progress. And I'm not saying Trezano is necessarily not going to show up at all, and he's done, and he needs to call it quits. And it's just like it's a it's a confidence-based thing, man. Like, same reason a lot of fighters will see a sports psychologist. It's like, man, why are you seeing a sports psychologist? You're a badass. You're the toughest guy at the barbecue. You're the toughest guy that any of your friends and family know you're the toughest guy going like why do you have this self-doubt in yourself why does george st pierre throw up backstage before every fight well, he's the best of all time he's gonna go out there and win it's like it's like nerves right i i don't know just to me appears like he just doesn't want to get hit i know what you're saying with the volume you're totally right some good choice not fighting great guys and he doesn't throw up great volume but trezano could be argued the same thing like his last time out he lands 35 significant strikes before he got knocked out by almeida like he wasn't letting his hands go prior to that yeah, looks okay, 70 against Hakeem, but, like, he got doubled up, right? Like, he, there was no sense of urgency there. The fight before that with Ludovic Klein, it's the same thing. It's, like, 50, 60 significant strikes. So, yeah, maybe it's a little more than Sung Woo Choi, but I don't know. And Choi having the three-inch reach advantage, you know, uh, an inch in the height department. Like, listen, this is a stay-away fight on any other card. On a nice card like this where there's spots that you like, like, I don't know why you would want to force the hand and bet something, but, yeah. of course, you and I, we talk about every single fight. We have to yep. make a pick on every single fight. Uh, you're, you're taking Trezano, I'm taking Choi. One of us is going to be right, unfortunately. And I'm one of us is going to be wrong. Yeah, but it just doesn't seem like it's the biggest priority for anybody this weekend. Yeah, well, I mean, we've won. Yeah, there's 14 fights on the car. We have two more to break down. But, like, yeah, there's so many underdogs I like that's like, yeah, Mike Mike Trezano is not getting the juices flowing this week for me, buddy. Um, frankly, the rest of the card is not exactly getting the juices flowing for me, but we got to break them down. We got Montel Jackson taking on Julio Julio Arce. Uh, Jackson is a minus two hundred favorite. Arce could be had for plus one seventy. Your thoughts? Yeah, this was a tricky one to break down because, like, Montel Jackson at his best, like this guy is very physically strong. They keep mentioning the fact that he's got like one of the biggest hands in the uh, not only in the division but in like the UFC. And he's got a nasty grip strike. You see a lot of these guys that fight him; it's like they have very difficult time fighting off like his wrist control. And he's young. He jumped into the UFC with virtually not a whole lot of experience, not a whole lot of years of training. So he's learning on the job and like kudos to him. Like I like what I see out of Montel Jackson. He's got a difficult frame for the division as well. Five foot 10, 75 inch reach at 135. Um, fights as a southpaw. Very tricky, capable of picking up those wins. It's just that when you're beating JP Byes and Jesse Strader, Felipe Corrales, what can we really take away from that? Not a whole lot just yet he dominates these lower level guys he comes in as a massive favorite he gets the job done his last time out against jp buys he uh he scored four knockdowns like everything he landed dropped buys but overall he only had 25 significant strikes landed four takedowns in the mix it didn't seem like he had a lot of versatility he had the power he had the ability to get the fight where he wanted but everybody had that fight inside the distance it should have been inside the distance multiple times over and there was no real killer instinct to him 
Prior to that, his fight with Jesse Strader, he does knock him out, but rest in peace, Aaron Carter. Jesse Strader is Aaron Carter's boxing coach. Like, I don't know why he's in the UFC, but hasn't had the results, so to speak. So it's very difficult to gauge how good Jackson is because you know how good he could be, but he hasn't really fought in those top 20, top 15 type guys. This is a huge test for him because Arche is exactly that. Um, I think that Montel Jackson could win this fight by potentially getting the fight to the ground, grinding over Arche, doing his damn thing. But here's the worry there. Julio Arce is hard to take down, man. He's extremely quick-footed, fights off his back foot excellent. Big K designed for this man because he's very dynamic, has excellent footwork, cuts great angles, and has nasty uh, volume. And so th the fact that he's rocking a 94% takedown defense, that's going to be extremely pivotal. He's fought in some decent guys. Not necessarily all of them have tried to take him down. But for the most part, it's checked out for him. In his last fight with Daniel Santos, he just matadored him. Picture-perfect game plan, dude. Moved off his back foot the entire time. Combinations, jab was landing, kicks were landing. Composed, didn't make any mistakes. Lands 127 significant strikes over 15 minutes. Looked great. If Jackson can't take him down, he's going to do the same thing. Back up, move out, pick angles, sharpshoot, land shots, get back at range, do the damn thing. If Jackson can grab a hold of him and neutralize him, well, then it comes down to the judges because like, if Jackson doesn't have huge ground and pound and huge submission attempts, he's just taking him down, they might be inclined to go with the superior volume from Arche. Again, Arche fighting basically at home. I mean, he's from New Jersey, right? He's going to have mm -hmm. a lot of friends and family. They're going to be inclined to go with the guy that's landing the shots, stuffing the takedowns, and working. And so I do feel like Julio Arche has the goods to go out there and pull it off. And at plus 175, I'm willing to take a slight flyer on that. So I like Montel Jackson. Don't get me wrong. I really do. But this is a, he's jumping into the unknown. We don't know how good he could be unless he fights that litmus test fighter. Arche is that guy. So we'll know way more about him past Saturday. But we already know things about Arche. We know that he can move. We know that he's fought high level. We know that he's a former Golden Gloves boxer. We know that he can switch stance fight. We know that he can stuff takedowns. If he can do all that come Saturday night, uh, I think he, I can think he's spring the underdog upset. So sign me up for Arche plus 175. I mean, the the real path to victory for people against Montel Jackson so far have been being able to out-wrestle him. Like, he, he likes getting people yeah. to the ground, but it's like Ricky Simone and Brett Johns both were able to, you know, take him down there and stay out of trouble while you're on the mat with them. I, I, I agree with a lot of the things that you're saying. Sorry, your final pick was Arche? Yeah. Yeah, I kind of agree, too. The only problem is, like, he's giving up five inches of reach. Like, Montel Jackson is enormous. So, it's like, you're probably eating shots to get into the pocket to land your own shots uh, if you're Julio Arce. Um, but, yeah, if he keeps this fight standing, it's going to be, it's going to look a lot closer to a pick'em or even Arce favorite. Um, yeah, the, the big question mark becomes, can Jackson get him to the mat? And he's had some significant success against a lot of people, but eh, some of his other, you know, some of his other opponents, like he's, he's, we're so used to having him as just a enormous favorite every single time he's been out there um, because they've been giving him kind of cupcake matchups. Obviously his submission skills are on point. Yeah, I'll, I'll lean ever so slightly towards Julio Arce with you. But another spot I'm not too confident in. And who knows where the, the line goes over the course of the week because I imagine when they're standing next to each other, I wouldn't be shocked to see some uh, action come in on Jackson just based on the fact that he's going to be towering over him. And finally, we got Carlos Olberg taking on Nikolai Nagumareno. Minus 120 Olberg, plus 100 Nagumareno. Who you got, buddy? 
Pat Olberg, I actually like the line too. Uh, Nick Nigger Mariano, listen, I mean, he's just been plotting his entire time out. He's young. He's training at Extreme Couture now. He's getting better, but he's extremely plotting. He's a guy that lost to Saberbeck Safarov in his debut. Didn't look like he was going to augment to anything. He was known as a Romanian wrestler, and yet where are her t- where is his takedowns at? But if there's one thing about him, it's what he showcased since he's come off his little hiatus and uh, has actually won four fights in the UFC, if you can believe that, is like he's durable and he's with it. Like he'll keep coming forward. He'll let his hands go. His cardio is not great. His wrestling is not great. His, his, his uh, striking defense is not great. But he can take one hell of a punch. And as a result, you know, he's willing to mix it up and just kind of break you down. Guys that have lackluster cardio, he can take advantage of. In the Alexa Kmore fight, uh, Kmore flat gassed out. That's what allowed Nick Mariani to get the win. But straight, I mean, he got outstruck 102 to 71. The thing is, is that those 102 significant strikes from Kmore came in the first round and a half. The 72 from Nick Mariani came in the second seven and a half minutes. The judges favored that second half. He gets the split decision. Ike Villanueva, very limited. Kenji Jaquu, there's a split decision. This is the second split decision now. Kenny outstrikes him 95 to 64. And yet, Nick Nigamarianu gets a split decision again. How? How is this? Two times now. He's getting outstruck. The numbers are clearly the other way. But he's likable. He's with it. He sticks in your face. He throws down. But like, I don't see any one glaring skill set of his that I think uh, any uh, the opponent should really worry about. It's more so just he's hard to put away because he's a tough customer continuously coming forward. He's going to grease out these split decisions. And his last time out against that Ehor Pereira, uh, or P- Podiera. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody was big on that guy. Everyone was calling him a fraud, ballooned up record, shouldn't be in the UFC, gonna get smoked. They hammer Nigga Mariano, and he does win. But again, like he's fighting a fraudulent type fighter, and he, he took him to the second round, TKO'd him in the second. I think he's serviceable. I think he's the kind of guy you throw on an undercard all day long, and fans in the arena will probably like his style. He's the kind of guy that's probably relatable, blue collar, have a beer with him afterwards. Like he's got that kind of workman like style. But uh, Carlos Ulberg, I think, is way more polished, way better kickboxing, and kind of not coming into his own, but getting a lot more comfortable. Like he's got the kickboxing pedigree. He was a male model down in New Zealand. He's Izzy's buddy. You know where where his actual skill lie. But uh, you saw him, namely in that fight with Candy and Jaquu, where the first round he looks like a million bucks. He's mm-hmm. landing shots at will. He lands 146 significant strikes through a round and a half and then just flat gasses out and, and, and loses. I think that was a great moment for him. That caused him to realize you can strike, you can hang in the UFC, but you need to uh, change your approach a little bit, not throw, go guns a-blazing, be smart. You know you're a good kickboxer. You're a long-rangey guy. It was a boring fight, but he looked completely, uh, comes forward, heavily muscled, and durable. And I thought Alberg did an excellent job of finding a spot, knocking him out minute 15. You see that Alberg it's still young, you know, still uh, improving, but beyond anything else, getting more comfortable he's seen the bright lights he's competed he's had more mma camps he's trained with guys at the highest level he's figured out stuff and i think that's going to be a big factor now against nick nega marianu if this is going to be a striking match and nega marianu is usually down with that alberg i think is just going to pick him apart the one thing that is interesting is that nega marianu's blue collar style of coming forward and causing you to work could could yield dividends over a guy like Ulbrich that if you put the pressure on him, he may have a tendency to kind of melt. For me, though, big cage, you're going to see that skill discrepancy in the kickboxing range. You're going to see the, the improvements that Ulbrich's made to his footwork, and I think he's just going to stay to the outside and uh, generally just pick and choose his spot. So I got Ulbrich, and I'm also going to take Ulbrich by decision. Yeah, I mean, Nick has been incredibly, incredibly durable. You, were, you, you brought up yeah. the fact that like some of these wins that he's got, like... I mean, they weren't really wins. The Kmer fight, very, very surprising decision there. Um, 
And yeah, Alberg, the biggest hole in his game was yeah, he just came out too hot. I'm sure on the regional scene, he was just knocking everybody out. 83 significant strikes landed on Kennedy and Juku in round one, and then 63 in round two, and then he fell off a cliff, basically. But he was still, even though he was tired at the end of round one, he still had 63 significant strikes in him in round two. It's like... But he set a pace that he couldn't keep, and uh, we've seen improvements from him. Obviously, getting a couple takedowns against Fabio Charant, that's interesting. Um, I'm with you on Ulberg, but uh, and I haven't brought it up over the course of the program because I haven't really been able to dig into the numbers this week as I usually would on the prize pick side. Promo code DOP if you want to get a match up to $100 on your first deposit. But like Carlos Ulberg's significant strike total is only 46 and a half. Which, sure, he may not have the same type of approach as he did against Kennedy. But, like, Nicky's very, very durable. The guy just takes an incredible amount of damage. 46.5 significant strikes. It's like, we could be clear. We could, he could clear that in a round. But, you know, within two rounds, it's like, I'd be pretty... Like, if this fight goes to decision, like you think... Um and Alberg wins a decision here. It's like I would be stunned if he doesn't get over forty six and a half. That was the first number that like really jumped out at me. Um, as I've been like looking at it, uh, you know, I haven't been able to dig into the numbers like I usually have leading up to a big card. It's Fourteen fights it was like there was more fights for me to research uh, coming into for today. But like I like Alberg. As you like Alberg, but yeah, that forty-six and a half significant strikes. I saw in like another site out there, they've already got it at like sixty-five or something like that. So that number is going to move. I got to figure out things to add to that Alberg line because more than forty-six point five significant strikes for Carlos Alberg seems very, very good. As long as yeah. Nick, uh, Nikki's chin holds up, and we know Nick's chin holds up. Um, only bet I have in right now is Wang, uh, Zhang Weili inside the distance, minus 110. I was able to scoop that up. Um, I'm considering Ulberg as a bet. Uh, Terman as an underdog play. Molly McCann, eh, we'll see. I don't really want to jump on that train, to be perfectly honest. You got me thinking about Frankie Edgar. Michael Chandler uh, will probably get my money when all is said and done at the end of the week. Uh, Alex Pereira. And yeah, I'm very undecided this week. I don't want to go spamming underdogs like I did last week. And then, you know, they don't come through. The books had them right all along. And I got egg on my face. So I got to fine-tune my plays um, a little bit more than I did last week. Um, hit them with the PRP, kid. Yeah, 14 fights. And as it's looking right now, I think I'm going to go with seven underdogs. So half the card being dogs. The one I could switch, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. Uh, but yeah, funnily enough, we're going to go Pereira, dog. Zhang Wiley, favorite. Dustin Poirier, favorite. Frank Yeager, dog. Dan Hooker, favorite. Brad Riddell, dog. I think I'm going to go with Ryan Spann. I can see myself going Ryan Spann. Um, it was the underdog. Ryan, uh, Aaron Blanchfield, favorite. Wellington Tournament, underdog. Otman Azatar, favorite. Savannah Gomez Juarez, underdog. Sungwo Choi, favorite. Julio Arche, underdog. Carlos Solberg, favorite. I need like <laughs> favorite dog, favorite dog, favorite dog. Couple, you know, a couple favorite favorites. No dog dogs. But uh, yeah, Span's the one. I don't know. You've talked some sense into me as well. Like it's you're chasing a dog more than anything. Is he good? No. Could he win? Sure. But that's MMA. Anybody can win. And if someone's going to blow out their knee randomly or dislocate their collarbone or 
whatever the case may be, sure enough, I'll have them because like my run of getting the injured fighter on my plays is just ungodly. But all the same, you don't go to bed all 14 fights. In fact, most books won't even allow you to parlay that many anyway. So pick and choose what you like. I think that there's some some good solid favorites and there's some good solid underdogs. If you want to be like Paul and just pick and choose a couple of solid dogs with some solid money. If you took two or three dogs, one of them comes through at one of these you need two of them to come through, but plus 185s, plus 160s, plus 170s. Like, it's not like you're getting a plus 120, plus 130. There's some decent enough dogs. And of course, you can chase a couple of props as well. So, uh, yeah, excited to try to get at this one and just hoping like the run of not just like bad luck and bad picks is like the like mysterious clout of like my main event guy just gets hurt or freak injury or. Like, I get Marina Rodriguez could lose the fight, sure, but just, like, melted, bro. Not melted. Like, it was maybe I mean, Lamos, stalking, I just, is I just always going to be dangerous like that, though. Yeah, I know, I know. Just, you you think, you know, geez, Marina's never been knocked. I don't know. I was just on the under, and that worked out. It just doesn't mean. That was one of the only things that worked shit. out for me. I had the over two and a half, but it didn't pay very good. And it's like, it barely squeaked by. Then everything else I had on it. Uh, not so good, but again, listen, we do a show every week. We have to make full picks on every card. So there's going to be some bad picks along the way for sure. But, uh, when you do feel like you got a good line, when you do either you got a good feeling about it, you've done your research, you're confident, you get that gut feeling or your buddy's James Christ and he tells you his guy's about to take it back. <laughs> if you've got an inside scoop, if it's like one yeah. of the other. Who's got the inside baby, scoops? Not... We need the <laughs> inside mean, scoops. If you knew about Minner being injured before that line moved like 15% in win probability, hit me up. I want the scoops. Give me those inside scoops. I'm not anywhere close to the inside, Cody. We need to be on the inside on these things. I'm only half kidding. What 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 gets me is that you'll see it all the time where the guy's like, I tore my meniscus a week ago and I got an elbow infection and I got a fever of 103 and I haven't trained in two weeks. <laughs> and it's like, they just won the fight. This is their post-fight interview. And it's like, no, exactly. holy shit, dude. So imagine someone called you and was like, Paul, this guy tore his meniscus. He's got an elbow infection. He hasn't slept in two weeks. It's like all good advice. Of no. course, the game that we're playing is called MMA. And, bro, they don't give a shit about that stuff. It's punchy, kicky. Expect the unexpected. So all we can do is roll with the punches, the same as the fighters, and uh, hopefully come out on the side on the winning end for a change. Yeah, it's like when Frankie Murder took on uh, Surreal Gun. And, you know, <laughs> night of the fights. Oh, all I mean, I, I had Frankie Murder money line because the difference between him and inside the distance was so negligible. I was just like, what if this did go five rounds? I'm not expecting it to go five rounds. But then all of that information about, you know, he's, um, you know, he's got an absolutely injured knee. And then he walks out in knee wraps. And then Frankie Murderov uh, became a thing where he just wrestled his way to victory over the course of five rounds. So it's just like, yeah, those that, that injury news... It's probably good to be on the side of the non-injured fighter, but you don't even know that the other in the other non-injured fighter may actually be injured as well. All these guys are probably injured. The the the, the toll that a you know a six week eight week camp puts on the body. I'm sure everyone's got some you know nicks and scratches and all of that type of stuff. So sometimes it's better not to know. But if you got the goods, you know, hit me up at Paul Shag on Twitter at CJ Saftik on Twitter. Um, that is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. For Cody and Megan, I'm Paul saying goodbye and good luck. <laughs>
Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.